How's it going, everybody? Welcome to the Third Line Plug Sensecast. I am your host, Taylor Gibson. Joining me, as always, from the tropical metropolis of Calgary, Alberta, my co-host, Tim Jesse. Tim, how's it going, sir? It's going good. We've done a lot of podcasting work and been making a lot of Christmas cookies at the Jensi house, so I've been having a great time. Man, what kind of Christmas cookies are you and Chelsea making up? So uh, today we did shortbread, and then we're planning to do Rocky Road Squares and gingerbread in the coming days as well. Okay, what kind of shortbread? Are you making, like, whipped shortbread, or are you making, like, rock-hard shortbread? Uh, we're making a soft shortbread, so the recipe is actually really easy. It's basically a cup of butter, two cups of flour, and half a cup of icing sugar. Cut the dry ingredients with the butter, then uh, knead it a bit with your hands, put it into an 8 by 8 dish, flatten it down, stab it with a fork, throw it in the oven for about 50 to 60 minutes at 300 degrees Fahrenheit, and you're done. Tim, if you can only see how much I'm drooling right now just hearing that, it's... What, that I basically cooked a cup of, like, an entire stick of butter? Yes. (laughs) They are very good. So, Tim, we got a great episode coming up this week. This week is the Eastern Conference edition of our 2020-2021 NHL season preview show. So, we, first of all, we're going to give some big thanks to a couple of people who took some time out of their schedule to join us to record some segments. First off, we're going to give a quick, a really big shout-out to Trevor Bast and Sean Orr from the Left Coast Leafs podcast coming on to talk about the Leafs. Chris Katugas came on to talk about the Montreal Canadiens and... Silver 7 Sens writer Trevor Shackles for his record-setting third appearance chatted with the Sens. Wait a second. Did we have two Ontario teams and one Quebec team, but everyone we've talked to, including us, is no further east than Calgary? Yes. That's amazing. Well, I guess hockey is the language of the country, so I'm not surprised there's fans all over the place for every team. It's true. It is true. However, we still don't know if Sean Orr has made his return to Ontario yet. That's true. That's true. Yeah. So, Tim, let's take a couple of minutes here and talk about recording these segments because... I knew the Eastern Conference was one that you and I were very familiar with, given that we are Ottawa Senators fans. That is the division, or that is the conference that we mostly focus on. So, what were some of your thoughts on recording these segments with these great people? I felt that we got a ton out of these ones because, yeah, like we're more familiar. So, I think we were able to kind of probe probe everyone a bit harder, and uh, yeah, and we've had. Trevor on the show a lot so like we're pretty familiar with the guy as well so I think that we got an awesome segment on Ottawa our our segment with the Bods was really good too and uh, honestly the Montreal one was real fun to record as well so I think we got a fantastic show for you folks for sure man for sure so in recording some of these segments what were some of the takeaways that you take away from doing this it was a really nice to get a very down-to-earth perspective from Leafland because uh, I know a bunch of Leaf fans and for every Leaf fan I've talked to, I get a completely different perspective. And it's just really a test to how broad that fan base is. So just to get another 
viewpoint and one that's very much like believe in the plan it was really refreshing to hear so i thought that was really cool another one was just really getting to see through the eyes of a lifelong Habs fan like a franchise with so much so much history behind it and just talking with someone who's been there for many many years watching this team it's really cool absolutely and i think that was the big takeaway I took away from recording these segments, especially talking to Chris about the Montreal Canadiens, because Chris has been somebody who, like, I've known him going back 20, 25 years since I was a little kid. I mean, him and my oldest brother were really good friends when they were growing up, and I've always known Chris to be a Habs fan. So just getting to talk to him about his beloved Habs, and I did actually message him yesterday, and I did tell him, you know what? I feel I will forever feel dirty for saying nice things about the Habs. <laughs> and then I guess like the last thing is it's always always fantastic to have Trevor on the show and it's awesome to have him back blogging too. For sure, man. So without further ado, Tim, given that we got a fully loaded episode ahead of us, let's send it off to the fellas at Left Coast Leafs. <laughs> Presenting the Toronto Maple Leafs of the Atlantic Division are the hosts of the Vancouver Island-based Left Coast Leafs podcast. Please welcome to the show from Victoria, BC, Sean Orr and Trevor Bast. Gentlemen, how's it going? Welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us. Pumped beer. So guys, we got to start off by asking because every Left Coast Leafs podcast always starts out this way. What tasty beverage have you been enjoying for this segment? We uh, we had a, we well we just did a podcast about an hour ago, and so we cracked into a oatmeal stout from Nelson Brewing Company. Ooh, a nice fancy pants. beer. Yeah, the beer was pretty good. It was, uh, it was a darker beer. Uh, it was almost like a meal in itself, but no complaints on my end. Where I'm usually more into an IPA guy, but uh, the stout was good. That's good. But even some IPAs though are pretty pretty heavy though. Yeah, it just depends, though. Like, if, if you if you just have to, once you acquire the taste, it, you're fine. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Yeah. That's true. Like, I'll even be honest with you guys. Like, the first time I tried Fat Tug IPA, I'm sorry if I'm completely blanking who makes it. But, yeah, even drinking that stuff, I was like, man, this is super heavy. And then, you know, I just started enjoying the taste after a while. It definitely is acquired taste. And, like, Fat Tug is probably my most favorite beer it's from driftwood brewery within victoria and it's it's phenomenal <laughs> yeah that is sean's go-to beverage for sure awesome i've seen i've seen many of those go down oh believe me go i've down. had those nights too it is it never ends well <laughs> yeah. well we did get one good shooting the shit podcast out of one of those nights oh my god yes yes that is true but you know no that was the night i was drinking alexander keith's not fat tug though well, I mean, what else are you going to get at the Stampede? Yeah, that's true. That is true. I do kind of miss the Island Breweries, though. Yeah, we got some really good Island Breweries. I'm not going to lie. Yeah, to you. like Red 
like uh, Red Rock or Red Racer and Duncan is really good. Red Arrow? Red, Red Arrow, yeah. yeah. We're spoiled here. So one, I know one of you guys are on the island and one of you guys are back in Ontario? Uh, Calgary. I used to live in Toronto and Ottawa, though. Okay. Yeah, I'm yeah. based on Vancouver Island, just up the road from you guys. That's good. Yeah, we have uh, good beer scene. Absolutely. So, guys, given this is your very first time here on the Third Life Plug Sensecasts, we got to get to... We gotta get to know you a little bit, and the big question every time that we do this podcast, when we have somebody new, I always love asking how they became a fan of the certain team that they cheer for. Now, given that you guys do cheer for our provincial rivals, how did you guys become fans of the Toronto Maple Leafs? Definitely was born into it. Uh, I grew up in uh, in Ontario. All of my family is a Leaf fan, and just became kind of part of the family thing. My my grandfather uh, probably drove drove that, and on my mom's side, uh, and it's one thing where it's always been around of hockey, and then with the, with the Toronto beliefs, and not a lot of successes. More more along the lines of uh, connecting through uh, failure, but. Uh, it's been one where uh, it's it's been since uh, since childhood and, and growing up with it. So it's uh, for as long as I can remember, always been a Leaf fan. And my story is, I was born in Regina, born and raised in, in Regina, Saskatchewan, and during the original Six era. So my dad was a Leaf fan, and so I was a Leaf fan. We mostly in our area had Leafs, Habs, and Bruins fans, and then. Uh, you know the odd Blackhawk or Red Wing fan, but yeah, you just kind of you kind of picked one, and uh, it was usually what whatever your dad sat down and cheered for. So that's what I did, and I didn't. I was it was so embedded that I, I came out here in '86, and I there was versions of the Canucks that I liked, but it never rivaled my my Leaf fandom. That's true. Well, I bet '94 must have been a tough year, given that both teams met in the Western Conference Finals. That was tough. I did go. To, I went to one of the games actually. Really? What was the crowd like for that, those games back in the day? I possibly picked the, the shittiest playoff game of all time. Like, it was it was scoreless with three minutes to go. I think it was game three. And the, the fans just sat on their hands for like 57 minutes. And then Gary Volk, I want to say, maybe scored. And then they got an empty netter. And that was the, that was the game. It was, it was extremely underwhelming. Well, how did they do it back in the day? Did they do the 2-3-2, two, two, or did they do how they do it now with uh, two games at home, two games away, and then they just alternate from there? I think they did. Uh, You're definitely two, dating two, one, yourself one, one, here, Trevor, by knowing the answer to these. <laughs> hey, I was born in the early 90s. I just happened to have, you know, interest and uh, some useless knowledge about hockey. It's all on the internet. You just fake it. It's true. So, yeah. it, it really is great to hear how you guys became fans. Now... One side note here is that you both mentioned that neither of you are from Vancouver Island. So how exactly did you guys relocate to beautiful British Columbia? I can take us off here. And, that's, um, that's funny. Funny you asked that today, actually. Really? Yeah. Uh, I'm actually. I've decided to to move back to Ontario and uh, <laughs> trying to put that out there. But um, I moved to Vancouver Island about twelve and a half years ago to work for the Hockey Canada branch uh, in BC. It's based out of just outside of Victoria. So before that, I uh, did an internship with the Olympics from my uh, university degree program. So I've been out here working within hockey for the last 12 and a half years. And, and the reason that I, 
the the podcast started was just a relationship grew with Trevor. Uh, he volunteers within the organization within our our senior male division, and uh, just him and I both being huge Leafs fans kind of talked in, and he he was pushing a podcast idea, and then we just kind of got there, and it, it grew from there. I moved out here for work as well, but I was I was in my early twenties and person I worked for in Regina relocated here and offered me a job and I've been here ever since I went back for like maybe a two-year stint in the early 90s and then uh came back out and yeah I had an idea to do a podcast I, I was really getting into podcasts about four or five years ago and I said to Sean one time I said I'd have to talk to him weekly to update him on my he was my go-to person at BC Hockey for my division and so I, we'd talk at three o'clock every Monday and We'd spend like a minute talking about what we were supposed to talk about and 10 minutes talking about the Leafs. And I just kind of said, look, we should start a podcast. I already have a name for it. It's called Left Coast Leafs. And uh, we just kind of both laughed. And then about a year later, I just said, screw it. And uh, we, uh, we just started it. And, and then Sean, I came with the idea. Sean came with the craft beer idea. And, uh, and funny enough, like we were almost as known from our listenership as as the beer guys, as much as we are for the hockey, like people are, are entertained by our, by our beer segment as well. Now, when it comes to the podcast, given that the Toronto Maple Leafs have such a wide range when it comes to their fan base, where do you find more likely than not that their your guys' listeners come from? Do you think they come from out East or do you find them more West coast based? Our, our listeners stats are probably like 75% of all of our listeners come from the Ontario area. I bet really, we really hit the Twitter hard. And uh, I mean, if you're going to hit Twitter hard, you're pretty much going to get in with, uh, with leaf Twitter. You're going to get like Ontario people. And so that's kind of what we did. We got a lot of follows and we've grown it pretty nicely in BC because there's a, there's a pub in Vancouver that's a leaf pub. And so we have gone there a few times uh, for games and, and, and podcasted from there. So yeah, it's uh, mostly Ontario. Oh, okay. Okay. Uh, where about which bar in Vancouver are you referring to that was the Leaf bar? It's a, the Regal Beagle in, in Kitsilano. Oh, okay. That's actually kind of a cool name. I'm not going to lie to you. No, it's Regal Beagle on the floor. So. <laughs> it's a great spot to drink beer. <laughs> so, guys, let's talk about the Leafs. Now, the 2019-20 season was rather disappointing for the Leafs. Team performance was inconsistent throughout the season with a lack of scoring outside of the big four and goaltending being a huge issue. The acquisitions of Tyson Berry and Cody Ceci were lackluster. I mean, in fairness, the latter one, we could have told you that, but that's not the point. Obviously, with the Mike Babcock situation, he ends up getting fired. Sheldon Keefe comes in, and then the Leafs go into the play-in round and lay a huge goose egg in the fifth game against Columbus. In heading into the offseason, of course, there was a lot of serious questions that arose, and a lot of them had to do with is Kyle Dubas on the hot seat? Is Brendan Shanahan now being is now he's gonna get forced into being more active? What is Toronto now gonna do with the salary cap, given that it's a flat cap? But despite that, the Leafs were able to make some moves despite their limited cap space, they were able to shore up their top six with guys like Joe Thornton, Jimmy Vasey, and Wayne Simmons, while also picking up TJ Brody and Zach Bogosian. Overall, how do you guys feel about the Leafs' season last year, and what have been your thoughts on their offseason so far? I've already forgot about last year. I've moved on to this year. <laughs> but uh, last year was like a, an absolute utter disappointment. Going into the season, it was sky high. 
one thing that I would point out though that Trevor was on the uh, fire Babcock train for like a solid year before it actually went down. Like there was some severe hatred. Uh, I, uh, actually, I will say word hatred uh, towards Babcock and his systems, and just of how he was playing the team. And I think the decision to keep Babcock just was the not the right one, and it just it just kind of snowballed from there. And ultimately, I wasn't a fan of of keeping and staying with Anderson. I felt that he's given he's shown us too many times in the playoffs where. Yes, he'll make 30 fantastic saves, but then that one shot is just awful and it kills the team where I would have preferred a, a goalie change um, heading into this year. Yeah, I I, uh, I I kind of thought we went into last season with a bit of a lame duck coach. Although he had four years left on a contract, uh, he was just kind of on, he was on probation right off the hop. I don't, I don't think that's a good way to start a season. And I think, the players were kind of tired of his antics and his allocation of ice time. And I think that really put us back. And, and it's disappointing that we kind of, we went and we made that big move with J, with JT. And then we ended up having like two straight seasons of, of regression. And when, when it was, we all kind of thought it was winning time and just a lot of, a lot of factors about not shoring up the blue line and not giving the support that way. But uh, I do agree with Sean and, in the whole Freddie Anderson thing is that like, even for me, it was just asset management with, with Freddie who hasn't really proven anything, but being a good regular season goalie, we kind of are going to let his contract expire now and let him walk for nothing. I know that one bad move in that department and you might not even, you know, make the playoffs if you have a guy who can't even play in the regular season, but I think it's might come back to be bad asset management along the lines of maybe, when they kind of let JVR and Bozak all walk without uh, dealing them with the deadline and getting assets back, so yeah, that's kind of that's kind of where we're at for last year. Well, and it's, it's a, a, tr- a really transitional, transitional year in the middle of a win now period, which didn't sit well with me. Well, it's interesting you brought up Freddie Anderson because, as somebody who obviously isn't a Leafs fan and I'm an outsider to it all, the one thing I've noticed about him is that I do agree he's a really good regular season goalie, but. I've always felt that the Leafs not giving him enough support up front has really contributed to him running out of gas in the playoffs. And it really came down in the fifth game against Columbus in the series, a couple of series versus Boston. But I don't think he's a bad goalie. I think that, you know what, the Leafs just aren't doing enough to help him up front. Well, he's got one year to prove it. I mean, I I think the offseason moves this year, they probably have the most balanced team that they've had so far in, in this sort of little era we're in. And so it's up to him to just maybe like make the big save. But I would like to see us also score the big goal when it's required too. So we'll see if it all comes together. And I guess we're going to find out, hopefully. I guess one Even of the with him that I it though. kind of from the outside, but still playing the Leafs eight games a year and kind of being a team that the Leafs do, can go easy. We see a lot of the backup goalies and they haven't put a lot of strong defensive Freddie Anderson, but the circus of backups hasn't exactly been strong either with maybe Jack Campbell being the thing to shore it up. Do you think that's been running Freddie into the ground as well? The only thing, though, is like with, with Freddie is that like he had four months off and came back. He shouldn't have been p- tired to play five games in, in ten days or whatever it was. It's, I think it's it's more than that. Yeah, the, the team hasn't been fantastic in front of him, but you, if you want to like 
micro, like go, go down to the nitty gritty within that series against Columbus. He, he lets in a terrible goal at the terrible time. Like in game five, it's tied 0-0. He lets a goal in from the goal line with like seven minutes, or at least we're down one nothing, and this this put it to 2 nothing. Where it's just like, he doesn't give you the big save at the right time. He'll give you stretches in the regular season where he's a top five goalie. He's incredible. But he just, he hasn't done it in the playoffs. It's four straight years of losing. And at the end of the day, you need a goalie to step up in the big games. And he has continually shown he doesn't step up. He, it's like two years in a row against Boston in Game Seven. It's just constant disappointment after disappointment. And I love what he's what he's brought. He stabilized our goaltender's position. But I, I think with so many options this year in free agency or in the trade market, I would have liked to have seen them move on because. So if he comes in here, he has a shit year. So then the Leafs lose, and he's probably walking. Or if he comes in, he has a phenomenal year. He's too expensive us for for us to resign, and so it's, he's going to walk anyways. So it's like a, it's a no win. Like you're you're really just giving him one year, unless he's going to stay on a team friendly deal. But it's been proven the players won't take team friendly deals to stay in Toronto. And your your point with the backup was is good. Like last year, they made a lot of they left a lot of points on the table early in the season when they were trying to figure that situation out which those points may have got them out of the play-in round and so there's a lot of like there are a lot of factors but i I think sean and i are are so solid on our whole freddie uh situation like where we agree on that's one of the things we do agree on and his lack of success in elimination games even goes back to his anaheim days as well and so i don't know he's I think there's enough sample size there to say he's not a big game goalie. Uh, sometimes the goalie just has to steal a game, and it doesn't matter. Every team has warts up front, and and sometimes the the goalie just has to steal it. Over the past couple of years, a running storyline for the Leafs has been the trades being made to get the Leafs to fit under the salary cap. As a result of big money being given to players like John Tavares and Austin Matthews. A number of players, including Nazem Kadri and Nikita Zaitsev, have departed the team to make it work. With the newly implemented flat seller cap due to COVID-19, how do you guys see Kyle Dubas try and fit the team under the cap in 2021? Well, I think on, on those two like moves specifically, like I think it, it's, it wasn't it wasn't a salary cap move. Like for first off, with Naz, like Naz was a hard soul. But he literally got suspended two years in the playoffs and cost the team both those years. And he couldn't be trusted. Like, yeah, we love the big hits, but he, he totally screwed us when we needed him to keep an even keel. And and the Zaitsev trade was, that was a bad contract by Lou Lamorello. And getting rid of him for, for CeCe was actually huge for us because he's not a good defenseman for the amount of money that he was getting. Uh, he was really propped up on with power play, power play points in the first year of his contract, where he got a number of uh, secondary assists, which led to him having like 35-ish points. I think it's a seven-year deal. I think the big money going to the forwards this deserves. Like the JT signing, I, I would do that again. Uh, the signings for our top players, I, I, I'm fine with those. I was fine with they did them now. I'm, I'm fine with them right now. Um, I 
think it's you see it's the more of the, the middle line players like the Andreas Janssen and the, the Kapanen. But those players don't do much for me. Like they're they're good hockey players. They're they're good top like a, a bottom uh, like right in between like a second and third line type player. But that's where you need to plug and play with either veteran players or the young kids coming up. And the one that does hurt the most would be Naz because I, that he was my favorite Leaf player for everything that he brought to the table. But he cost us two years in a row, and he had to go. He, he couldn't stay. He was too much of a liability. Yeah, and I, I think your question about what, what, do you, what do you think Kyle Dubas is going to do about it, about uh, sort of keeping under the cap, he really, I mean, he went out and showed it this offseason already. It's yet to be seen whether it'll be successful, but... It's sort of just sort of picking at the lower to middle end of the uh, free agent market to assess the needs of the team. And that may have to turn over yearly. You know, you're going to get a lot of one-year deals for maybe the character guys and just sort of like Sean said, plug-and-play guys. And, I mean, I don't think he did it very well last year because uh, he didn't have a lot of money to do it with. Like, like he said, Johnson and Kaepernick were still taking up for space. But now he went out and we got we got a, a Thornton, we got a Bogosian, uh, a Jimmy VC, Wayne Simmons, all that really good price points. So um, I think this is what you're going to see happen as long as we can keep Toronto as a as a destination. I think some guys are going to want to come here and uh, and get a chance to win. I think that's fair. I think that's honestly fair. But I think for myself. Seeing the lease, trying to get under the cap, it's I, I understand. Like I, I agree with you guys. I understand them giving the money to like Tavares and the Matthews and guys like that. But I'm also somebody who's trying to look down the road. How is this going to affect the team? And especially now that Morgan Riley is going to be looking for a new contract after the 22-23 season. Like, how is the lease going to balance this out in a few years when Morgan Riley's contract comes up? Well, that's interesting because. You'll see Freddie's money coming off the books, and that—that's when you gotta hope. You know, what what the Leafs haven't been able to do is draft and develop a, their own goalie for a very long time. I mean, like imagine having a a goalie under team control for six years, <laughs> you know, and and paying him uh, the league minimum entry level salary, and then maybe a bridge for a couple of years. I mean. They've never had that, and maybe maybe they do. Maybe they have that in the system now with uh, Jacob Wall or someone like that. So I think they're really going to have to they're going to have to go thin at that position salary wise. Like I don't think they can overpay, and they have to allocate that money to Riley to resign him. And it sucks that there's not going to be much or any of a uh, American Hockey League season this year or ECHL because I mean that's bad. Like that's. Those are huge goalie development leagues, you know. Never mind your your positional players, but I think the I, I think, think the Riley, gonna have to come at the uh, at the goaltending position. I think Riley's the one player on the Leafs too that would take a hometown discount. Like he loves playing in Toronto, and I think if they, if they can keep that number between six and seven, I think he stays because losing him would be a, a huge loss to that blue line. But time will tell. Well, what is the likelihood that, say, a William Nylander gets traded out of Toronto to get Morgan Riley that money when it comes to contract time? 0.1%. I think the Nylander contract 
it's good value. I like. I just think you have to look at what what kind of value you're getting. And I mean, if he can have a any any player close to the kind of year he's going to have over 82 games this year, I mean that that's a that's a great contract. And I mean, it's probably. I mean, Dubas has said he's never going to trade one of those guys, and I could. That's possible or probable. So I think it comes from elsewhere. I mean, it already started with uh, Kapanen and Johnson. And uh, if, I mean, you just have to, you're going to have to go younger and hungrier. If, if, if Nylander's traded, it's for another defenseman to come into play with Riley. But with the TJ Brody signing, they've already gone out there and addressed that without it. I, I, I think they love the dynamics of Nylander in their top six. Like He is a 35 to 40 goal a year player. The the reason you can get you can start harping on him is because when he plays hockey, he looks like he doesn't try hard. But that's kind of a, a bullshit statement to stay. I, I think it's one where he, he is without a doubt one of our top players. And, and trading him, like you'd have to trade him for an elite young defenseman. And and the Athletic did an article this past summer. And they went through every defense within the league, and there's only like three or four guys that you would really trade Nylander for straight up for a defenseman, where because because of what he brings to the table and how well he can play with either Tavares or Matthews. Well, it's funny talking about Nylander because like when when I see him play, obviously this is when the Leafs play the Sens. Is that I, I do agree with you? Is that when he plays, he does look like he's not trying hard enough. But I often wonder if it's just one of those things where it's a mentality of a guy like he knows he's that talented that he doesn't have to go full speed. And I know this is not a great comparison, but it was like back in the day when I used to see Matt Sundin. Sundin was kind of like that way too, where yeah, he would go hard when he needed to, but at times it just looked like, yeah, it just looked effortless for him out there. Yeah, I mean, I just, he's never going to finish his checks. He's never going to like take a run at a guy, all these things that kind of like really diehard true blue Maple Leaf fans want to see, like they want to see the Wendell's, the Dougie throwback kind of guys. But when you, if you really like dive deep into Nylander's advanced stats, he's always leading the league in takeaways and stuff like that. And, and, and he's low on turnovers and but he always gets ragged on for turning over the puck for not digging in corners, but he just does it in a, in a different, more effortless way. And as hockey people were, that doesn't sit well with us a lot of the time. Like we want to, we want to see like guys just there and flurrying all over the ice, but like the, the game has changed. And I think he's probably doesn't meet a lot of people's eye tests, but you're going to start seeing more and more people like that in the NHL. So heading into free agency, the biggest name on the market was defenseman Alex Pietrangelo, who had been linked to the the Leafs for quite some time. With Vegas being the team to land him, Toronto ended up signing TJ Brody instead to a four-year, $20 million contract. After how the Leafs utilized Tyson Berry last season, I am actually quite fascinated to see how they use him in the lineup, because he most likely will be paired with Morgan Riley as the number one pairing defenseman. Overall, how have you guys, or what have been your guys' thoughts on the signing, and what expectations do you have for him in 2021? I, I, th- I thought it was a, an A-plus signing. It, 
ticked all the boxes that we needed to. I can either play with Riley or, or Muzzin. He's a legitimate top four. He's proved it with what he has done with Giordano over the years. Yes, the health is a concern with him uh, collapsing on the ice this year, but by all accounts, that's uh, that was a one-time thing, and, and he is healthy. He's he's completely different than Tyson Berry. Tyson Berry was the wrong fit for this team at the wrong time, and it just the the whole right-hand shot to, uh, D-man kind of clouded that. I think with, with Brody, it just ticks the boxes where – Petrangelo was a, was a pipe dream. It, it, he was, it was impossible to have that signing happen, and and from like it just it wasn't going to happen. And I, I'm really happy with how it that shook out because we got him at four years at a, at a, a decent AAV, and I think with with Petrangelo, year six and seven of that deal is is going to hurt. Uh, so I like this signing there, and I think there's a lot of value for it. I think we need a defender who's going to defend. And as opposed to Tyson, who is always sort of, he's always leading up ice. So Brody's not going to defend in a traditional sense. He, he doesn't, he's a body position guy. He's a stick guy. He isn't going to run through people. A lot of people on in Eastern Canada don't get to watch a lot of Calgary Flames games, but we, we get to watch a lot. And he's, he's just, a, he's efficient with his movement. He moves the puck well. He's a good first passer. Yeah, he, he shoots the wrong way for what we've been saying our needs are, but we can make that fit. He's one of those guys who will play the other side. And yeah, I think it was Petra Angelo being a sort of the unicorn that we never got. I, I think it's, uh, they got the best guy out there after Petra Angelo. I would agree with that, but the only thing that I was thinking of when I saw that Brody signed with Toronto, given that he did have a down year and he is entering his 30s, as Leaf fans, like, is there even the slightest bit, or a slight bit of a mindset where, if you look back 25 years ago when Larry Murphy came to Toronto, where high expectations, they saw what he did in the past, he comes to Toronto, it doesn't pan out. Is there maybe even the slightest mindset with Brody joining the Leafs like that? Not for me. For me, they had they had to do something like, and this this was the the, the best move. Like, if, if they did nothing. Dubas would have been eaten alive within that Toronto media, and I think it was the right one. And I think he, if he, you want to get a defenseman of that caliber, of that quality, you have to pay a little more in free agency. And really, it's you hope for the best. Like it's at this point, like no better could have been done with the cap situation, with the roster that they've put together. Uh, I think it's just like I said, it takes all the boxes that they need. Yeah, I just I think. What we had going wrong for us on the on the defensive end of things lately is like people just being slotted wrong. Like the success of your defense is just if everybody's slotted in the right spot, if they're playing the right amount of minutes against the right caliber of the competition, then you're in your sweet spot. And they just they've never been there. Like they've always had Riley Hainsey with an aging Hainsey going up against top lines for 23 minutes a night and then we got CC and they're always moving Marinson in and out of the lineup and and it's just nobody was ever slotted properly and even though like, TJ Brody might not be, be a North Trophy candidate it does push people back down the lineup or out of the lineup who were playing up too high versus the caliber of competition the Leafs have to beat 
to get where they want to go. So alongside Brody, the, the other big name Toronto signed in the offseason was future Hall of Famer Joe Thornton. Thornton has been a guy who has been rumored to be traded to the Leafs as recently as the last trade deadline due to his, his desire to play on a cup contender. After the past couple of seasons of declining production, fans, I think, have come to terms with the fact they're not getting the same Joe Thornton that played 10 years ago for San Jose, but instead they're getting a veteran who can come in and mentor some of the young guys in the room. With the Leafs bringing Thornton in, like, how do you guys see him playing this season for the Leafs? I think it was just an, another nice piece to add. It's at $700,000, so it can be buried at any point. It's not going to be made with its salary cap. It's one where if it works out, great. If it doesn't, there's a number of options that they have. Uh, I, I think it's a, it could be a nice fit for that third or fourth line center, but for, for me, if Joe Thornton is playing a, a meaningful role in this team, then there's serious problems because our top guys aren't doing what they're supposed to do. It's, it's a nice fit, but... There's so many different options at the bottom six of this team that it, it could work out. It could. It couldn't. Um, yeah, I was happy with the signing, but it's it's it. If Thornton plays, like I said, if Thornton plays an important role outside of leadership, then there's issues because we need our top six forwards to be outstanding. It's not like they paid six million dollars for a mentor that they then had to trade for a first rounder to get rid of for the third year. Like it's not it's not the Patrick Marlowe situation, and then I think the Leafs do need someone else in that dressing room. There's there's this weird leadership gap in the dressing room with the Leafs. There has been for a while where you kind of have the young guys are a little more apprehensive to lead. JT is a quiet leader. Riley is an outgoing guy, but there just there seems to be a weird weird mix of leadership in there. And I think a guy like Thornton is going to come in and just loosen everybody up. Be a go-to guy, maybe in the second power play. Maybe make some, get some key points on the second power play unit, or maybe they, maybe they go two balanced units at some point because he's, you know, they're they're liking what they see. But yeah, it's a, it's a. I don't see a, a situation where they, like, where they Larry Murphy him or they boo him out of the building because I mean, I, if he gets five goals, but has some other intangibles, that's fine. If he gets fifteen, well, then it's a home run, right? Yeah, it's a low-risk, high-reward signing, basically. Absolutely. So, Tim, do you have any questions you got for the guys at Left Coast Lease? No, uh, I think they covered everything well. Uh, other than maybe talking about Cody CC Freedom Day, I think we hit everything. <laughs> Cody CC Freedom Day. Yeah. We got ours on Canada Day. You got yours a bit later. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah. I actually was pretty hopeful when they got him. I thought maybe he was... I, I, he played with Eric Carlson, for God's sakes. They made it to the Game 7 overtime of the conference finals. Like, how bad could he possibly be? Well, keep in mind, CC was with Dion the whole time. He was in Ottawa, so he wasn't That's really true. playing with Eric. That's true. But he and didn't cost the first round, the second round. <laughs> like, he made it to the bloody conference finals. So that, I, uh, I was, like, super optimistic. But uh, we, 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 gave him, we gave him three weeks before we evaluated him on the podcast. And... Uh, it was a pretty lukewarm evaluation. Well, it's funny, guys. Like, my oldest brother is a huge Leafs fan. And when him and I were talking about the CC for Zaitsev trade, he asked me point blank. He's like, man, like, what do you think about CC? And I just went, you guys are screwed. 
Like, I've watched this guy for five years, and, like, this guy's not a good player at all. And the worst thing is, is, like, I remember when uh, the first time we saw Cody CC in the 2013 playoffs, there were flashes of brilliance, and it, the tool set is there. The problem is, is the hockey IQ wasn't. And uh, there's an infamous sequence from, I think it was 2016, that uh, TSN personality and former blogger with Hockey Buzz, uh, Travis Yost, just calls the sequence where uh, Cody Cece and Ben Harper are defending a penalty kill. And uh, they're just kind of skating all over the ice like chickens with their heads cut off. And they eventually end up with both of them looking at the goalie as someone's behind them shooting. Oh, I do. I recall that. Yes, I do know that. And Travis yeah. Yost put it to the Benny Hill team. Yeah. <laughs> and you can, I mean, you can, you can hide forwards with low hockey IQ. But you, in fact, I mean, there's, there's an argument to, to be made that, like, Taylor Hall is a very, very north-south blinders kind of low ho- IQ hockey guy, but he's so dynamic that he won an MVP. But you, you can't put a guy like that on your back end <laughs> you, you can't you can't put guys like that back there yeah so it's like the only skill I would take, like, like the promise was there and then it just was never delivered and Ottawa did the only, so high. The only so. skill that I would take over uh, skating like it's, it's skating and hockey sense for me for a hockey player like like yes you have to skate the game because that's what it is but if you can't think the game at that speed and that level you're gonna fail and it's been proven time and time again with CC, and there was no way he was coming back. And I can't even believe that there was consideration of like a like not trading CC for Juan or like holding on to him. Like I, I, I can't believe that ever took place. Yeah, it mystifies us both. So yeah. guys, we can't thank you enough for coming on the podcast to record this segment with us. Now, two things before we let you go. First of all, where can our listeners find you guys on social media? And where can they find the Left Coast Leafs podcast? We are on Instagram and Twitter, at Left Coast Leafs. And we're on all the regular platforms on, on podcasts. Uh, iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify. We don't have the Joe Rogan exclusive Spotify deal, so you can go anywhere and get us. And the final question I got to ask is, given that every NHL team released their reverse retro jerseys, in one word, what is your guys' opinion on the Leafs' reverse retro jersey? Christmas wish list. I like them. Awesome. Thanks so much, guys. Thanks, guys. Representing Le Canitian of the Atlantic Division is a longtime Habs fan and a good friend of the show. Please welcome to the show from Victoria, BC, Chris Katugas. Chris, how's it going? Welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, gentlemen. Happy to be here in the belly of the beast with some Sens fans, eh? 
I know. It's hard to believe, man. It's hard to believe. But you know what, though? Like, I've known you for such a long time, and I know that you've waited, I don't know how many decades, to hear me say nice things about the Habs. So I figured if we're going to be doing it, we got to get you on the podcast. Uh, well, I'm happy to be here. Uh, pretty excited about the season and looking forward to what potentially might be an all-Canadian division. So this might be uh, the beginning of a, an all-Canadian rivalry from coast to coast. So looking forward to it. Uh, it's going to be great, man. It's going to be great. So, Chris, given that this is your first time here on the podcast with us, we got to do, we got to get to know you a little bit more. Now, you're kind of an anomaly to all of this because on these episodes, we've been chatting with podcasters and bloggers. And like I said, you're kind of the anomaly because you're not a blogger, you're not a podcaster, but you are a longtime fan of the Montreal Canadiens. So, do you mind talking a little bit about just who you are, what you do, all that good stuff for our listeners? Yeah, so I'm a long-time fan. I've been a fan of hockey, what feels like my whole life. It's kind of a weird one to be a Canadian fan on the West Coast, but, but not that weird when you think about the history of my family. I, we're, we're Greek Canadian immigrants, so uh, my parents were born in Greece, and, and uh, along, um, along with my uncles and, and some of my aunts, they moved here in the, uh, in the 60s and, and early 70s, and of course, at that time, who was pretty darn good at hockey at that time were the Montreal Canadiens. So uh, obviously the Canucks uh, uh, <laughs> uh, weren't, uh, weren't around then. But once you know my aunts and uncles came to Canada and, and started to try to fit into Canadian culture, hockey being one of those things that was uh, obviously really a, a big slice of Canadian culture, it was a natural fit for, for the Greeks in town to uh, enjoy the, the, Can- uh, the Canadians' uh, that, that changed after the Canucks became a little bit more popular in, in Victoria, but that was where I got my start. I had a, a, an older cousin that was a big Canadians fan, and, and back in the late 80s when, uh, when I was really young, Montreal had won a cup in 86, and, and that was when I got started watching them uh, as a five-year-old, you know, watching Hockey Night in Canada after that with, uh, with my cousins when we got together with family, and it was love at first sight. Well, and that's funny, Chris, because like I've known you for, oh, geez, I'm thinking going back 20, 25 years. And like I've always known you to be a fan of the Montreal Canadiens. So I think after all this time, it is great to finally hear, well, first of all, how you became a Habs fan. Because like I said, like I've always known you to be a Montreal fan. And after all these years to finally understand and hear how you became a fan is actually really great. Right. And I think when I first met you, I, I feel like I. I thought you were a Boston Bruins fan when we uh, when when you were a kid. I, I remember recalling you with some Bruins gear on. I don't know if that's fighting words on this podcast, but, uh, but I do recall that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, you know, my dad was a Bruins fan. Like, what can I say? But you know, since then, uh, he's obviously switched his allegiance to the Canucks. But yeah. no, yeah, I do remember those days of uh, you know, obviously all the Bruin posters on the wall and coming over and trash talking you as a little kid. So. <laughs> So that explains yeah, why you're willing to apologize for Cam Neely. Yeah, yeah, I know. Look, I like Cam Neely. What do you want me to tell you, Tim? Having a good time. It was, uh, yeah, those were those were good times. Oh, they were amazing times. And I know, like, I always remember as a little kid doing those floor hockey games in the basement of our place. And it's funny, like, when I told my dad that you were coming on, that was one of the first things he brought up to me. He was like, yeah, I remember when Chris used to come over to those road hockey games. Why did you end up always whacking him in the legs? <laughs> well, I appreciate you toughing me up, and uh, and I appreciate your 
your dad and Kathy always having a, a fridge stock full of food and and I, oh man the uh, we the, we play three on three hockey down there on our on our knees with a couple of nets and and for hours at a time and it was uh, it was a great time oh it's the best of times man. So, Chris, let's start talking about the Montreal Canadiens. So, the 2019-20 season was a rough year for Montreal. The team's offense was almost non-existent at times, with guys like Max Domi and Brendan Gallagher having down seasons. Their defense left much to be desired, and Carey Price not giving the team much help up in, on the back end, posting a 2.79 goals against average with a .909 save percentage, didn't help things. Once COVID-19 wiped out the rest of the season, Montreal was then put in possibly the worst position ever heading into the play-in round as the 12th seed versus Pittsburgh. Thankfully for the Habs, though, Carey Price turned the clock back 10 years, stealing the series and then almost willing himself to upset the Flyers in the first round. With the surprise playoff run by Montreal, I was actually a bit concerned regarding how GM Mark Bergevin was actually going to go forward with Montreal, given that he could have just blindly optimistically seen that, okay, we made the playoffs. Maybe Montreal is ready to make that next step, but instead he made the very smart decision to recognize the team still need to improve. And he answered a few questions on that team, especially in the playoffs. Like he answered for the team's lack of scoring by signing Tyler DeFoley. He made the trade with Columbus sending Max Domi for Josh Anderson, giving them a big tougher forward up front. And he answered the backup situation by bringing in Jake Allen. As a Habs fan, like, what was your thoughts on the on the Habs season last year, and overall, what has been your opinion on the off season so far? Right, yeah. So um, coming into the year, there was some genuine excitement. The year before, they had missed the playoffs like by a few points, and and they were really close. So to start last season, there was that genuine excitement about okay, maybe they're going to make the playoffs this year. Maybe they're going to do some good things. And it didn't go well. They had some injuries to start the year. I think Druin was injured pretty pretty early on. And things started to go south pretty quickly. But it, it was that prior year where Bergevin had talked about a reset, talked about rebuilding. And that 2017-2018 year had not gone well. So then the, the year after, 2018-2019, that genuine excitement, there was young, talented prospects in the pool in the mix. And they had the best goalie in the world. But when they fell flat in 2018-2019, sorry, 2019-2020, uh, you know, it, it left us thinking, okay, what are we going to do next? I, I got to say, like, in Montreal, it's really hard to rebuild. Like, it's been 27 years since they won the Cup, 25 years since they traded Patrick Waugh. The city itself has been just desperate for something uh, positive. And as a Habs fan, um, you, you know, you can't keep talking about 1993 over and over again. You, you want something exciting to, you know, latch on to. So when, when, we got, when we got to the end of last season and, the, and we hit COVID, I don't know if I'm going too far ahead here, but we thought it was over. We, we had, you know, we were 12th in the Eastern Conference at that time. It was pretty clear that Montreal couldn't be further away from, uh, from a cup run. So... When we hit COVID, you know, there was talk about tanking, hopefully trying to get that first number one pick um, if they could get it. So when we hit when we hit that long extended period where they were trying to figure out what to do next for the um, for playoffs, and we heard some of those rumors about whether there'd be a, a, a twelve team tournament, and that Montreal might have been in it, you know, it, it started to pique our interest. Um, 
and <laughs> once it was announced Montreal was in that tough spot uh, against Pittsburgh, there, there was some genuine excitement. We had made the playoffs. <laughs> yeah, and that was the funny thing about the Habs pre-COVID. And I know, as you said, like they were 12th in the Eastern Conference. And I remember during that time, like, there was a lot of talk that from Habs fans saying, okay, well, we're not going to make the playoffs, but we do have a legit shot to land that number one pick being Alexei Lafreniere. And obviously COVID changed that, changed all of that. The Habs got in and they got into the first round. So one particular guy I do want to talk a little bit about who did play a huge, huge role in your guys' playoff push last year was Carey Price. Now, his play in 2019-2020, as I said, didn't give much help to the Canadians as he went 27-25-6 and in 58 games. Price, throughout his tenure in Montreal, has been the guy between the pies. Like, without question, Montreal wouldn't have had the playoff runs over the past decade or so without Carey, despite fans being at odds with him mostly in 2010 when Yurosov Halak took them to the Eastern Conference Finals. With his play being so outstanding in 2020 as he really did turn the clock back and he started stoning guys left and right, coming out of that, like, what kind of expectations should fans have from in 2021? Well, I, I think they, they have really high expectations for Carey Price. I mean, he, he makes, I think his, his salary cap hit is over $10 million. He, he's proven year in and year out that he can be the best goaltender in the world. But the challenge coming up is how, like, what's his longevity like? Can he play a full season, uh, at, you know, posting the, the numbers in terms of, like, games played that he's that he's posted in the last few years and maintain solid numbers that are going to help Montreal get to the playoffs and, and then make some noise when they get there. Last season, he, he had um, 58 games played. The season before, 66. Season before that, 49. Season before that, 62. He puts up big numbers in terms of games played. I think he leads the, the league in, in total games played and total minutes played in the last five years. So that being said, if we expect and continue to expect him to put up amazing statistics behind those games played numbers, we're going to need him to be sharp and fresh. And I think that's a big reason why Montreal went out and signed a solid backup in Jake Allen. So when it comes to Carey Price, he's motivated. He's highly motivated. In fact, he's been a bit critical of Montreal in the past few years about not going out there and signing, you know, big name talent, not uh, making trades to make the team around him better. He was not interested in a in a rebuild around him. He's motivated to win right now, and and this would be at the NHL level the only level he has not won. Uh, so yeah, Montreal has big um, expectations in. And our fan base has big expectations in Carey Price, but I think Carey Price has the biggest expectations on himself and, and on his teammates. It's going to be exciting to see him play. Well, and I don't blame Carey for having such high expectations on him, given that I don't think it's even a um, hot take to say, like, Montreal, without question, is the hardest market to play in Canada, even more so than Toronto, because, as I've said in the past, like, Toronto, they only are... Agro, and they're only mad at you in one language. Montreal, they're mad at you in two, if you screw up. <laughs> right, and that's what makes Carey Price so so cool. Like, For the most part, he can be so calm and cool and, and collected. And then he can also show some fire and, and really um, uh, breathe some life into his team. Like, I, I, You have to have a special personality to play goalie in Montreal because when, when things are going really well, 
they elevate you to sainthood. But when things are not going well, it's like that chorus of booze is, uh, it, it might not be any louder than anywhere in the league, right? And, and I know that Carey Price has faced some heat uh, along the way, and he's stuck in there. And, you know, he's been their goalie for the last 10 plus years, and that's an accomplishment in a market like Montreal. So you're right about that. It is a really tough market to play in. Um, and the French English thing is you're getting double the pressure <laughs> in Montreal. Well, one last thing about Carey Price, Chris, and I know that the Montreal Canadiens throughout their history, like they've had some outstanding goaltenders like Ken Dryden, Jacques Plante, Patrick Waugh, who actually 25 years ago today was traded to Colorado. Where exactly would Carey Price rank if the all-time greatest goaltenders if he was to retire tomorrow? Right, that's a tough one. You know, in terms of, of his skill and ability and, and the way in his positioning, like uh, it's hard not to be a homer about him because, like, uh, you know, he's the Montreal Canadiens goaltender. But year in and year out, he's voted as one of the top players in the league. And I think the NHLPA, am I right by saying he was voted NHLPA top player last year? Um, or top goalie, at least. Um, I don't have the notes to back that up, I, as far as I know. So, you know, it, it, it's hard to, to, you know, to crack that, that Mount Rushmore with, with Patrick Waugh on there and Ken Dryden and Jacques Plant. But in, in terms of skill, um, it's hard to take it away from Carey Price. He's never really had an amazing team in front of him like all the rest of those goalies. Uh, I'm, I'm pretty certain uh, Ken Dryden just kind of hung out in that on both nights. Uh, I shouldn't say that, but uh, I know the team in front of him was uh, among the best that have ever uh, been assembled. Um, Carey Price has had to eke out uh, wins with shot totals against him that are far greater than any of those goalies. So at least my perception is skill-wise, he's, he's one of the best, but you can never take it away from a goalie like Patrick Waugh and, and Dryden and Plante who have done, uh, who have won all those cups. Because in Montreal, that's what talks. They don't post on the, they don't, they don't hang uh, division banners in, uh, in Montreal. They hang Stanley Cup banners. And, and that's what's going to keep Carey Price from being uh, among the, the legends and uh, legendary goalies in Montreal. For sure. And I know that while Carey Price doesn't have a Stanley Cup, he does have a Hart Trophy. And I believe as far as I think the last Habs goalie to win it was Jacques Plante. So Carey does have that over those other goaltenders. Yeah, you know what? They, like, on top of Jacques Plante, um, Jose Thierry won the Hart as well. Oh, they, that's they right. They some really good goaltenders in Montreal. You have to, you know, you, you have to say that, that like some of the best goaltenders that have ever uh, played the game have have been in Montreal, but uh, but I hear you. He does have that hard uh, trophy, and 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 you know that that is an incredible accomplishment. Um, I, I'm uh, I'm holding out judgment on that one. I, I think he has one more accomplishment to win, and and I'm hoping he can do it in the next few years. So one of the big storylines involving the Habs this offseason was the trade with Columbus sending upcoming RFA Max Domi to the Blue Jackets for another upcoming RFA in Josh Anderson. Domi last season was a guy who had a major drop in production, then followed up by only having three assists in the playoffs. Most of that can be placed on the emergence of young guns like Nick Suzuki and Jesper Kotakekanemi, and surprisingly and Passing him on the depth chart, but also there was a rumored falling out between him and head coach Claude Julien that may have fastened his departure in Montreal. Anderson, despite his 
injured riddled season with the Blue Jackets last season has proven to be a very solid pro and will bring a much needed big body up front who can throw it, throw it around and contribute offensively. Overall, what were your thoughts on the trade itself and what expectations should the fans have for Josh Anderson in Montreal? Yeah, great question. So, like, maybe I'll backtrack here. I was a little bit, um, you know, when you when you hear originally that uh, Max Domi was traded to Montreal Canadiens, that uh, actually felt for Galchenyuk. You sense fans are going to know a lot about Galchenyuk soon. Um, when Max Domi was traded to the Montreal Canadiens a few years earlier, I was... Uh, I had mixed feelings, you know, uh, obviously um, with his dad, Ty Domi, in the league, and uh, he was always one of those uh, guys you love to hate on the Toronto Maple Leafs. I'm sure the Sens fans know exactly what I'm talking about. So when, when Max Domi was traded to Montreal a few years ago, I wasn't sure what to think. I, I knew that Galchenyuk needed another change of uh, scenery, but when he came, he actually he surprised me. He had a really good year. I think it was 72 points in his first season, and that was in the 2018-2019 campaign. And and I was, you know, coming into last season, uh, pretty excited about Max Domi, thinking that he was going to have a, a, a follow-up year to that and, and lead Montreal to the playoffs, be their leading scorer again. But it, it didn't turn out that way. He had a really rough season last season. He had, I believe, 44 points over 71 games, which was a major disappointment in, in terms of what his expectations were. So coming into his last year of his contract, which would be this upcoming season, I expected a lot more from, from Max Domi. So when when Montreal decided to trade him, it wasn't a surprise. And you're right, absolutely. Max Domi was expendable. Guys like Suzuki and Kokinami had amazing playoff series along with Philip Deneau, made that center spot that Max Domi has played in the past. He, you know, he was bumped out of that slot, and, and really he could play uh, on the wing, but guys like Jonathan Druin and Thomas Tatar were ahead of him in the depth chart, and it doesn't make sense to bury him on the third, on the fourth line, uh, so he became expendable. So when he was traded, you know, that becomes like, well, who do you trade him for? You've got a guy that scored... 71 points the year before what's his trade value really worth when he had a tough season maybe you're right he maybe he had some difficulty with the coach so what should you get for him and what they did trade for him was josh anderson so josh anderson is, is exciting on paper when you look at him i mean he's a power forward at 6'3 220 pounds that's exactly what montreal's been looking for and exactly what bergevin's been looking for for what seems like his whole tenure at montreal a big power forward and that's what it looks like on paper. But uh, Anderson's coming off a really injury-ridden, riddled season. He, um, he, I believe, I, I gotta recall how many games he played, but very few. <laughs> um, for twenty-six, so, in, so not many. Twenty-six games, yeah. And so when you look at that on paper, it's it's kind of scary. You know, I I was worried about that, but the season before he was a, you know, he was a. I can't remember how many points he had. I'd have to check it out, but he did quite well. So uh, what Bergevin's looking at is not what he did last season before um, his surgery, um, but what he did the season before and what he could bring to Montreal on a line with likely with Kokinami and Drew. And uh, he brings that size and that skill, and uh, and and that's what what Bergevin's excited about. And and really, that's what I'm most excited about. With Domi leaving, you lose some of that skill, but um, a guy like Josh Anderson is, is hard to find. Um, there's there's 
plenty of skilled players that are like Domi out there, but that power forward in the NHL in this day and age is really difficult to find. The challenge also is uh, his health, obviously, but his contract. So seven years is a long time. Uh, They signed him after they traded him. They signed him to seven years at 5.5 mil per season. But truth be told, I, I suppose that's what a power forward costs in the NHL these days. But it, it really is a great risk, and hopefully um, it pays off for Bergevin. Well, one thing about Max Domi, and obviously because he became expendable with the emergence of the young guys, I often wonder, like, say COVID-19 didn't wipe out the season and the Montreal Canadiens ended up with that number one pick. If the Habs had landed Lafreniere, would Domi be expendable regardless? Yeah, hard to say. Um, I, I think that he was coming up on a contract year, uh, and I know that what he would be expecting for what uh, a guy like him um, is going to ask for, it, it just didn't make sense with some of the other roster players that are also looking for contracts coming up. I'm not sure what's going to end up happening with a guy like like Thomas Tatar. They, they could re-sign him. They could, they could trade him by year-end. But you're right, if they had a guy like Lafreniere, uh, well, how do we say his name? Lafreniere. Lafreniere. I think it would have changed the whole landscape of the team. But going into that playoff series, taking you know, taking down Pittsburgh and coming really close against Philadelphia, it put Montreal in a different spot. Um, they really are in a win-right-now phase. And Bergevin, who is generally regarded as very shrewd in the offseason... He does not hand out contracts like he had handed out to Josh Anderson. In fact, you know, I, I kind of curse him every offseason going, will you sign somebody? Will you, will you go after a free agent? He keeps saying that everybody's good and, <laughs> and that the team that's in front of uh, the, the team that they're going to field is going to do just fine, but they don't. So he comes into this season after this playoff, and, and actually he, he comes out and, and does sign some free agents, make some trades. So this was a, a, a big shift for Bergevin. And, and you got to feel that he's under his own set of pressures. This is, I think, year eight for him, year seven or eight. And, you know, in his second five-year plan, and, and likely if they miss the playoffs one more time, he, he, you know, he, one would think that he would get fired. So going out there and signing a guy like Anderson is probably going to be tied to his legacy as either a really great move that's going to pay off over seven years or part of what's going to be a giant blunder for Bergman. So, but you know, we don't have the crystal ball to know whether or not if they had, you know, lost against um, Pittsburgh, whether they would have got that number one pick. Uh, but I got to feel like that playoff experience was worth the trade off. They might've moved up two or three spaces in the three or four spaces in the draft, but I, I do think it was worth the payoff to, to have that playoff experience for guys like Suzuki and Kokunyami. Heading into free agency, one of Montreal's big needs was goal scorers, and they targeted former King and Canuck forward Tyler Toffoli, who got a four-year, $17 million contract. Toffoli's point totals have not been amazing over the past couple of seasons. Much of that I would put on how LA has built their team. However, he did show he's very capable of scoring as he was a point-per-game player for Vancouver. Now that he's going to a team that is more offensively-minded than LA, it'll be interesting to say how he plays for Montreal, most likely with Nick Suzuki and Josh Anderson. What was it, What is your thoughts on Toffoli as a player, and how do you see him fitting into Montreal's system next season? Right, so... Um... I think he's going to fit just fine 
and, and, and really what I think that he was signed for, and this was a bit of a surprise, no one had really seen this one coming, but what he was added for is like his presence on the power play, and I think that's where he's going to pay dividends for Montreal. So I, I know that in the offseason in Montreal, people were going to, what I've seen out there is that Montreal was going to go hard for Taylor Hall, and, and that didn't work out. So Montreal signing to Foley was, you know, he wasn't the big fish that they were hoping for, but he's still a pretty good catch. And it's nice that Bergevin didn't have to give up any roster players to make that move happen. And and so, like, when you ask if he's going to be a good fit for Montreal, he's proven that he can score 20-plus goals in a season, and he's a, a fairly consistent producer. With another 20-goal scorer in the mix, it gives the Habs some, some added depth on forward. And, and, and really, this is a team that has trouble scoring. And, you know, night in and night out, they have Carey Price, you know, stopping most of what he sees and, and keeping most teams to under two, two or three. And, and really, when, when Montreal doesn't score, they have no chance at winning. And, and obviously, that sounds obvious, but I, I can't tell you how many games um, they lose 2-1, right? So, like, this is a team that has trouble scoring. So someone like Tyler Toffoli is going to help them. And, and really, if we talk about the power play, where I think that he fits best, Montreal power play is abysmal. It was ranked 22nd in the league um, last year, and far closer when you look at the stats at the bottom of the league than, than the top. So teams figured out Montreal over the last few years. They figured out that, that Weber was their golden goose, and, and the team was looking to feed Weber the puck and, and have him unleash his league fastest slap shot. I think, it, I think it's like 108 miles per hour, and, and hope everyone gets out of the way and they score a goal. But but that wasn't working for Montreal. Their power play wasn't working, and the rest of the league figured them out. Um, but now with someone like Toffoli, it adds some extra um, options for them. So I know that in last year's playoffs um, with the emergence of Suzuki and the return of Druin, uh, who was missing for the majority of the regular season last year, um, Toffoli gives Montreal more options on the power play, and, and he'll stick either in front of the net where Gallagher is usually makes his presence felt and or he'll be in the slot and Gallagher will stay in front of the net and and really between um, you know the two of them they're going to create some chaos in front of the net and, and it will open some, some doors for guys like Druin and, and Suzuki to, to score goals and, and, and that's where I think Toffoli's going to make his mark is that he's on the power play. One of the big bright spots for the Habs last season was the emergence of some of their young guns like Caden Primu and Jasper Kotakekanemi, but neither of them emerged the way that Nick Suzuki did, who recorded 41 points in 71 games, then leading the team in scoring in the playoffs. With the departure of Max Domi, bigger things are now expected from Suzuki, who is projected to be the team's second-line center behind Philip Danino. How big of a surprise was his play on the team last season, and do you see him fully break out playing alongside Tyler Toffoli? Well, I, I hope so. So Nick Suzuki is exciting. I, at the start of last season, it was surprising to me, at least, that Suzuki had made the team over um, over Ryan Poling, Paling. Um, Paling was the one, I don't know if you recall, but, I mean, in the last game of the regular season, Montreal played Toronto. This is the 2018-2019 season. Uh, and Paling scored three goals in his NHL debut, uh, and he actually scored their to the game tying goal and then the shootout winner. And it was pretty uh, exciting. And Paling was pretty highly touted prospect for Montreal. And I thought going into last season, 
that Paling would be the one to make the, the big club. And it turns out Suzuki made it over top of Paling. And, and, and really, that was that proved to be a really, really good move. Suzuki came in right from the get-go, was given great uh, opportunities to, to earn um, to, to earn his ice time and to earn his points. And, and I believe his point totals um, last season were, well, maybe I'll, I'll cut back. Like, Bergevin and uh, scouting department, they knew what they were getting in Suzuki. He had... You know, he had great seasons in the Ontario Hockey League. I think he had over 400 points in, in just over 300 games in that league. And, and he was projected to do pretty darn good. And I, I remember seeing him actually in person at the um, uh, at the World Junior Championships in Vancouver last year, or uh, two, two years ago. Suzuki came in and, and really, he didn't look out of place. He, he got to play on the power play. He got to play in the top two lines. Um, and he had some limited, you know, some, some games where he had limited ice time, but he made the most of it. And I think he had about 44 points last year, um, which is pretty darn good um, for a rookie in Montreal. And, and I know that coming into this season, there's high expectations for him, but, but not overly high expectations. Like we, we have to remember in Montreal that, um, you know, Suzuki is not the next, you know, uh, Maurice Richard. He's not the, the next Guy Lafleur. Um, but he is a solid, uh, hard-working winger, and he's going to have, you know, he's going to, if he keeps doing what he's doing, la- what he was doing last year, he's going to have a good season, maybe get into the 60s for points. Uh, I, I don't think that's um, out of the range of possibility for him. Well, and I know when uh, Nick Suzuki was a prospect for the Golden Knights, I remember looking at that roster, how it was built, and I remember just thinking, like, I don't know how exactly Nick Suzuki is going to make this club. So when Montreal made that train setting Pacioretty to Vegas for him, I thought he was going to a really kind of a perfect situation in Montreal where the depth maybe isn't really there and he could maybe solidify himself in Montreal. Right. And that, that was a great point. And when you look at that trade now, I mean, Max Pacioretty uh, has done a great job for the Golden Knights, but Tatar and Suzuki, um, I mean, those are two important pieces in Montreal. Like, Tatar plays on the top line. Suzuki's going to be a top-line player for Montreal down the road. Like, you're right. that, that what, Montreal was a team that needs a guy like Suzuki who can make some plays, put the puck in the net. And he would, he, you know, he stood a, a far better chance in Montreal than he did in Vegas with all their, their talent. You know, that's a, that's a really good point. So, with Carey Price undoubtedly being the starter, one of the big storylines involved young goaltender Caden Primu, whom only played two games last season, but he proved to be Montreal's best option behind Carey. The Habs then went out and made a big splash acquiring Jake Allen from St. Louis for a 2023 and 2027th, effectively making him their backup, making Primo now the third wheel. As a Canadiens fan, like, where do you stand on this? Do you feel that they made the right choice acquiring Allen, or do you feel that they should have let Primo get some backup starts in Montreal? Yeah, when you talk about um, depth chart, being a being a goalie in Montreal, being drafted as a goalie in Montreal, is be a frustrating thing. You've got Carey Price; he's been there for so long, and and you like really Montreal has had some some pretty highly touted goalie prospects over the last few years. You've got guys like Bukali, you've got, uh, I'm trying to remember a few more of them, like they're, they're buried in the minors because it's really difficult to make the big club when you know that Terry Price is there. But what Montreal needs is not a, an unproven rookie. They need somebody with some NHL experience that's going to play 20 to 25 games and give Carey Price a chance to rest and be fresh. 
We saw what he could do in the playoffs when he had a shortened NHL season. Uh, he can really shine, right? So you, you can't, um, you, you know, it, it's hard when you're uh, a team battling to make the playoffs like Montreal. You need Carey Price in net almost every game. And, and when you're playing Carey Price there almost every game, he's going to get tired. So someone like Jake Allen, who has experience, you know, in St. Louis, he's, he's played, I mean, you know, 40, 50, 60 games in, in St. Louis. He's played seasons as a number one goalie. He's the right fit for them. Somebody that can come in and, and backstop them to uh, actually win some games when their backup goalie's in uh, and really give Carey Price a chance to rest and be fresh for some of the big games or in back-to-back games. You know, when you ask how do I feel about it, uh, I think that it's really hard to, to feel too badly for a goalie prospect in Montreal knowing that like, you have a guy like Carey Price uh, who's going to remain their top goaltender for the next three to four years. Primo would have only been a backup for him. And, and really, I, I, if anything, would have liked to have seen a guy like Primo uh, come in and showcase um, his skills and win a few games, but also maybe just be showcased to be traded. You need a good, solid veteran backup to be there, not an up-and-comer. So maybe that's my opinion. But there's there's Primo and there's, a, there's several other goaltenders over the last four or five years that have had the same sort of treatment. And really, Montreal needed a, a good, solid backup goaltender with NHL experience and and that's what they need to do to win now I would agree with you Chris I was just thinking more because of COVID-19 the American Hockey League now has I believe they suspended their season for 2021 and that would put uh, Caden Primo in an awkward position because okay well where does he get the starts now does he maybe get loaned over to Europe is he now a third goalie in Montreal like I'm not exactly sure where Montreal is going to be using him given Jake Allen will be the primary backup with the Habs, right? And that, like, that puts him low on the on the depth chart for sure. Or sorry, yeah, he's low on the depth chart, but that puts him in a tough spot, like where where you know he's not developing. And, and I hear you on that. But Montreal also has guys like Charlie Lindgren, um, who have had actual play um, experience. Um, he came in for Terry Price a few years ago in an injury. Montreal has Michael McNiven. Like, I hear you on that one. It, when you're when you're prospects aren't getting a chance to play um it, it really it leaves them hanging but like seasons are long and and COVID's going to be interesting like i i can't see uh i can't see both allen and and price being the only two that suit up for the whole year and and i do think that um primo's going to get an opportunity to play a few more games okay so say hypothetically say jake allen comes in and he has absolutely has a brutal season as a backup where now do montreal then does that force montreal's hand to maybe say okay well maybe we should start going with primu over allen i could see that happening um the 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 trouble here with going with allen was that um he's an expensive backup goaltender at two years 5.57 sorry 5.75 million um it was his contract like that's an expensive um price tag for a backup goaltender uh, you know it's a big risk for them and if things don't pan out for for allen it would be a big mistake but you're right that they have primo in the in the backdrop he could he could come up and, and fill that role that would be the hope and and really if if something happens to price which he has proven that he can um play injury-free seasons, but he also has struggled with injuries in the past. 
it might give Primo an opportunity to come up and, and also guys like Lindgren and, and uh, McNiven a chance to, to see some time as well. So, Tim, do you have any questions for Chris? No, I think we got quite a bit of mileage here. Absolutely. Hey, can I ask um, what you guys think about Galchenyuk and, and what, uh, um, what your thoughts are on that? Frankly, I don't know what to think because it looks like he's kind of had a rough go of it over the last few years, uh, especially between Pittsburgh and Arizona Phoenix and ending up in Minnesota and the goal totals, the shot totals are just kind of declining since that 30-goal season in 15-16, so I don't know what we're going to get. If he can revive his career a la Tyler Ennis, then great for him. If not, it's probably a low-risk signing. I wonder how motivated he'll be to play the Habs. Especially if if they go with the All-Canadian division, too. That's right. So, Chris, we can't thank you so much. We can't thank you enough for taking time out of your schedule today to join us to talk about the Montreal Canadiens. So, two things before we let you go. Now, we've been asking everybody who's doing these segments to plug their social media and where they can find the blogger podcast. Now, I'm not exactly sure what other social media accounts have outside of Facebook. So, if you have any accounts, do you want to plug it here on the show? <laughs> you know what? Um, it's funny. I never got a chance to mention I'm. Uh, uh, in my world, social media is something I try to uh, try not to post too much. I'm a, I'm a high school vice principal, and I, I'm not sure how much my students want to know about Mr. Katugas. So I, I don't have anything to plug, um, but I, uh, I am uh, I'm excited about this upcoming season. I'm really hopeful we're going to get a chance to see some hockey. Really not the same when, when it's a, a dark you know, December uh, Saturday and there's no hockey night in Canada. I, I'm really looking forward to the return of the NHL and, and I'm going to, I'm going to look forward to the first game that Montreal plays against Ottawa and, and, and make sure that I'll be on that chat with you, Taylor, making, uh, making my uh, sly remarks to you as I usually do. Oh, trust me, buddy. It's, it's about two way street. It's coming right back. <laughs> so, right, I'll I'll just get the so circus, final the question. Uh, given that yeah. the NHL has released all 31 of the reverse retro jerseys, in one word, can you sum up your opinion on Montreal's reverse retro jersey? Yeah, one word. I I, I still think they they stayed classy. I I, I think that's Montreal's. Uh, they didn't go crazy with anything too wild. They just flipped the colors a little bit. I don't mind that blue. As far as jerseys go, Montreal plays it pretty safe. So I'm going to go with the word classy. Awesome. Thanks so much, Chris. No problem. Thanks very much, guys. Closing out the Eastern Conference portion of our season preview show, representing your Ottawa Senators of the Atlantic Division, is the host of the Sens podcast, Cosper Pointcast, and is now back as a staff writer for Silver 7 Sens. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome to the show, making his record-setting third appearance here on the program, Trevor Shackles. Trevor, thank you so much for taking some time out of your schedule to do this segment. Before we get any further, we got to ask the all-important question, how does it feel to know that you are the record holder for the most appearances on the third line plug 
Sensecast. You know what? I was just going to say that's a definite honor for me, being able to have that. I did not know that I, I held this fantastic honor, so thank you very much. It's always a pleasure to be on the podcast. Well, that clears up why you keep coming on, despite us saying at least one really awkward thing every time. <laughs> no, you're all good. Love you guys. So, Trevor... It's really great to have you back on the show, and it's actually funny because I was mentioning before we hit record, I did not realize it's been roughly two years since your last appearance here on the Third Light Blowing Says Really? Yeah. that long? I know, it doesn't seem that long, eh? Like, I I was trying to think back, I was like, when did we last have Trevor on? And I was thinking, it wasn't 2019, no, it was when the World Juniors were in Vancouver, that's when the last time you were on, mm. doing our Christmas episode. Wow, yeah. Damn, yeah, I didn't realize it was that long, but, you know, like I said, I'm always uh, willing to come on. So, Trevor, given that it has been a couple of years since you last appeared on the program, we got to get a couple of, we got to get a little bit of an update about what you've been up to. Now, the big update has to do with your podcast, Cosper Pointcast. Now, I know when you were on last time, Colin Cudmore had just joined as your co-host. Now, I understand just recently he has departed the podcast can you talk a little bit about working with colin and what ultimately led to him leaving the podcast yeah totally i mean yeah so colin was on the cost for pointcast from pretty much like two years ago until just recently and yeah honestly like fantastic things to say about colin he um definitely made the podcast much better it was definitely a lot a lot more content and then also he did a fantastic job with the Draft Evader series where he brought on for the 2020 draft in May. Like, you know, at, at that point, we weren't sure if the draft was going to be in June or not. But so he had, I think, eight different episodes where he brought on different scouts and they would sort of like debate various prospects and, you know, where where they should be ranked and stuff like that. So he had like eight episodes this year. I wasn't actually a part of those. That was just because that was sort of his um, his project. And I think like maybe five or six the year before. And... Yeah, you know, it was nice to just have a co-host to, I mean, even just something as something, sorry, I can't speak, something as simple as scheduling, right, with your podcast, Um, you know, if there was news on Monday, we could either record that night or Tuesday or something, It's, it's a lot easier than having to line up guests and stuff, so it was definitely very nice having him there, and yeah, unfortunately, just recently, he had to kind of take a step back from both writing and podcasting. I mean, you can you can listen to the, what would it be, uh, not the most recent episode, but the episode before that, where he sort of explains his, his thoughts. So I don't want to put too many words into his mouth, but it, it pretty much boils down to he just sort of feeling kind of apathetic and wants to sort of just take a step back from Twitter and, you know, you know being part of the Sens, Sens fan base. And he's still a fan of the team, but he just didn't feel like it was worth investing all the energy right now, considering you know, what the team has given back, essentially. That's sort of what he was going for. So, you know, hopefully at some point he will come back when, you know, maybe in a couple of years when Ottawa is looking really good again. So uh, I doubt we're, this is the last we've heard of Colin, and, you know, hopefully he can come back on the Cost for Point cast at some point. But, yeah, I mean, I wish him nothing but the best, and he was a fantastic co-host. So, But you can still see his... Sometimes his articles on Silver 7 Cents, he'll be doing a lot of draft content, both with 2021 draft and also Senator-specific prospects. So definitely be sure to uh, keep an eye out for that kind of content. 
So it was for it was different reasons than say yourself when you walked away from blogging say a year or two ago when you went back to school to get your masters. Pretty much, yeah. Um, yeah, that was more just a so that was what last August that I had to step back just because that was more time commitment. Now I don't want to speak for Colin. He might be someone that like still has time available to do some stuff, but you're right. This is more for him at least more like just. He just didn't feel like it was worth investing the energy, which is totally fair. No, that's very fair. It is very fair. And of course, as we know personally, like doing a podcast is so time consuming. And the fact that, you know, he just decided to take a step back and yeah, he's still a fan, but you know, all all the best to him. Like I was listening to a couple of your guys' episodes when he was the co-host and I did enjoy him on Cosper Pointcast. So no, it would be great to have him back either as a guest or as a semi-regular co-host again yeah totally can't agree more so trevor you mentioned just a minute ago that you took a step away from your uh sense blogging career now quite recently you did make a return to silver seven sends talk to us a little bit about what ultimately led to your return to sense blogging yeah so i mean that was in the works for a bit here as you mentioned, so I was just in a, in a one-year program at UBC here. So that finished in July. And yeah, so so for those 11 months, it was I knew I wasn't going to be able to do much in terms of writing and content. I still obviously kept the Cost for Pointcast just as something, you know, like one or two episodes a month. But yeah, so like by the time that June came around... I was definitely, you know, the program was winding down, and I was definitely sort of itching to get back to writing. So I wasn't totally sure where I could go. It was great to be on Hockey Buzz for a bit because, not going to lie, the the financial aspect was, was pretty decent, but at the same time, it was a massive time commitment. I mean, I was writing about 20 articles a month. It was only sustainable for a bit. That's why I was only there for, like, just a little over a year. So... In terms of great Ottawa websites, like Ottawa Senators websites, I think Silver 7 is one of the best, if not the best, out there. And so that was always, you know, in the back of my mind that I thought I could maybe go back there. And so in June, I had asked about it, and they didn't really have room, which was totally fair, you know, because they've added some, some very solid people after I had left in 2018. And honestly, like, so it was kind of a bittersweet moment for me because Colin stepping back was actually what was able to get me back onto Silver 7. So, you know, it was sort of like it was good for me in terms of writing, but also at the same time, I knew that we were losing a good writer at at Silver 7, or at least like a, um, you know, he's not going to be consistently writing. And then, of course, I was losing a co-host on the podcast. So bittersweet for me, but at the same time, I'm, I'm definitely very excited to get back to writing. You know, <laughs> I've had a lot of ideas in my mind. Like, I'm typing up one right now, and I'll probably finish it right after this, just about comparing the 2011 prospect crop that the Senators had to the current day one, and just looking at, okay, well, you know, David Runblad is kind of similar to Eric Brandstrom, and like Jakob Silverberg, you can kind of compare him to Drake Batherson, and just kind of looking at, okay, well, how, how did those prospects end up turning out? And just kind of analyzing where this current crop could end up end up going. So that's like a, definitely a very long article, but uh, keep your eyes out for that. That uh, It's been a fun one to write so far. I'm definitely going to have to... Sounds keep... like it'll be a bunch of fun, and uh, I'm glad we got a real cool book here. 
like before we ask for the plugs at the end. <laughs> so Trevor, let's start talking about the Senators. So the 2019-20 season was one that fans had real no expectations for the team outside of being the team to land the prize, Alexei Lafreniere, at number one in the 2020 draft. The main focus for the fans was to see the team's young guns like Drake Batherson and Eric Branstrom finally make their way to the NHL full-time, which didn't really materialize. Despite the lack of expectations, though, there were a number of bright spots for the Senators. The first year of head coach DJ Smith saw a major culture change within the team. He was holding players accountable and making them earn their ice time. The Senators, despite the losing, and I don't know how you feel about this, but I felt in a weird way they were a much more entertaining team to watch last year. The compete level was much higher than years past, and they were just playing more like a team. Of course, Anthony Duclair was on pace to pot 40 goals before he hit the 20-game skid last year. Jean-Gabriel Pajot was putting up career numbers before he got shipped off to the Islanders. Marcus Hogberg just came out of nowhere to steal games for Ottawa late in the season. And, of course, Brady Tuchuk was named to his first All-Star game, replacing Austin Matthews. And there were also a couple of really cool moments. Craig Anderson won his 200th game as a senator. Bobby Ryan returned to the lineup versus Vancouver after a rehab stint where he scored a hat-trick. The offseason for the Senators was an overall busy one with the departures of Craig Anderson, Mark Borowiecki, and Bobby Ryan departing the franchise. Of course, we can't forget the Senators... While they didn't win the draft, they landed the third and fifth overall picks, taking Tim Stutzel and Jake Sanderson at 3-5. and five. They went out and made a huge splash by trading Jonathan Gruden and a second for goalie Matt Murray, and then made a sneaky good pickup with the signing of Evgeny Dandenoff to replace Anthony Duclair. Overall, what was your opinion on the Senators last season, and what have been your thoughts on the offseason the Senators have had so far? Yeah, certainly a lot to go through here. I think there's been a mix of, of good and bad. Obviously, like you mentioned, Smith has done a decent job at, as head coach. I wouldn't say that we know for sure he's the coach of the future for this team because we do so, see a lot of the time there's this honeymoon honeymoon phase with, with coaches. You know, Guy Boucher looked fantastic in his first year. Paul McLean looked fantastic. Like most guys do. I mean, even Dave Cameron, uh, when he took over in the middle of the season, even he looked pretty solid. So I think the real test for him will be this coming year, you know, seeing if he can sort of keeps keep up some of that goodwill. So you're right though, I, I do like that there is sort of that idea of accountability within the you know, within the culture of the team. So to be honest, I think most of the good news from last year didn't necessarily come with the actual Ottawa Senators NHL team. To me it came with all of their prospect development. You know, you look at a guy like Josh Norris, who was Rookie of the Year in the AHL, one of the best players down there, too. Alex Formanton, he really proved to a lot of people, my, myself included, that he can actually score. It wasn't just that he's, you know, fast and, and can't really bury his chances. Like, he was almost a point-per-game player. You know, Joey Decord was fantastic down there as well. Even Vital- Vitaly Abramov, Eric Branstrom. Like, there were so many guys. Uh, Shane Pinto as well at, at UND, of course. So many prospects did better than we expected, and sort of raised their ceilings, essentially. And so I think that's most important to focus on when we think about the 2019-20 season. And in terms of the offseason, it's very hit and miss. Like, I think the Evgeny Dabnov signing is probably their best free agent signing in, I don't know, like it might end up being one of the best ever, because 
you look back at previous big signings, uh, I mean, the last big signing, I guess, was like Clark MacArthur, I guess. But even at the time, that wasn't seen as like a massive get. I think I think he was making 3.25 that year. And then even yeah, before the that, I guy we brought in was Gonchar. Well, exactly. It was like Gonchar and Kovalev, right? And they were they were fine, but they were also older. Not that Dadunov is that young. He's still 31. But, you know, Dadunov is a guy who had 70 points in 18-19. So this is a an actual scoring winger who can help them so much on the power play and just on that first line. So it definitely makes their, their depth on the right side a lot better. Uh, I think adding Murray is interesting. It's not something that I personally would have done, but I'm also relieved that they didn't have to give up, you know, their 28th overall pick to get him. I, I think it was a pretty fair price for him. I think his salary is probably a bit high, but I'm not really like that concerned about it because he does have that upside. He's definitely not a surefire thing that maybe some people think he is, but he's certainly a very interesting kind of reclamation project has kind of a bit of a negative connotation, I guess, but you know, he, he's certainly not a surefire thing, but if he is, if he does get back to how good he was in those first few seasons in, in Pittsburgh, that's, you know, a top 10 goalie in the league. And, you know, I, I also think about how I can't remember the last time, or I don't know if Ottawa has, has ever had a player on their team that has two Stanley Cup rings, especially two Stanley Cup rings before the age of, what was it, 25? No, 23, before the age of 23. So, obviously, like, adding Murray is, is pretty huge. I think some of the other moves definitely leave something to be desired. You know, if you follow me on Twitter, you, you know, I, I definitely wasn't fans of getting Austin Watson and Erica Branson. I just think that they're pretty... They didn't give up very much. It was, what, a fourth and a fifth round pick, so obviously not very much in the grand scheme scheme of things. But to me, they aren't really guys that move the needle that much, and I would have liked to see them, you know, use that money in a bit better way. Like, the Branson is making, I think, four and a half this year. So, you know, you could have either used that money to, you know, maybe get... A, a good player from Tampa Bay who's like cash trapped or the Islanders or something, or do what the uh, the Red Wings did by trading for Mark Stahl and getting a second round pick. So there, there's some things that I definitely definitely like about what they've done, but also some things that I'm kind of like, Ugh, why why do we why are we having to do this? You know. So that's sort of my relationship with Pierre Dorian. A lot of the time it's okay, I really like that, and then the next time it's ooh, okay, I like just philosophically I do not agree with that whatsoever. So but I'm aware that, you know, how I would build a team is certainly different than how Ottawa's front office would do it. But that doesn't mean that, you know, they haven't done good things or that they don't have good players in the system and stuff like that. But it's certainly been an interesting past couple months. I, yeah, 100%. I would agree that it's been a very interesting offseason. And I know that we'll talk a little bit later about regarding Austin Watson and Matt Murray. But the one thing that I'm really surprised about was Evgeny Dandanov. One, because I didn't really know much about him when we signed him. I knew he had had a couple seasons in Florida. I looked up some of his stats. He put up really good numbers. And the one funny thing about Dandanov, Trevor, is I didn't realize Ottawa signed him until you tweeted about it. Wait, so how long was that? <laughs> oh my god, I don't know. I it, it was funny, I had no idea Dandanoff got signed, and then I opened up Twitter and your tweet about the Senator signing him was like the first thing that came up. I was like, 
So in a weird, weird way, Trevor, you broke the Dandenoff signing for me. I, I broke it. Yeah, that's confirmed. <laughs> Honestly, maybe it's okay that you can disengage from Twitter like that. True. Yeah, that, that's a good point. <laughs> so one of the biggest storylines involving the Ottawa Senators this coming season will be the upcoming RFA status of Brady to Chuck. Brady has already proven he's prime, prime for a raise following his 1920 season last year, where he had 21 goals, 23 assists for 44 points in 71 games, leading the team in scoring and making his first all-star game with the senator's cap space. And with the eight plus eight contract given to Thomas Shabbat, it will be very interesting to see what the market bears for a guy like Brady. So regarding a new contract, how do you see a new contract being worked out with Brady? Do you see him, getting a long-term deal or do you see a possible bridge deal given the circumstances from COVID-19? I'd love to think that they could get an eight-year extension done just like they did with Thomas Shabbat. And, you know, if they did do that, I'd be curious to see if, like, I don't think he would get more than Shabbat, but I, I wonder how much he could get, maybe like seven, seven and a half or something like that. But you're right. At the same time, I think COVID has definitely complicated things. You know, who knows what Melnick's financial situation is like right now. Like it, it was never good to begin with. And now I, I really don't know what it's like. So I think that changes things. Other people have talked about how, you know, Matthew Kachuk did a bridge deal in Calgary. So people are kind of saying, okay, well maybe Brady is going to do a similar thing with Ottawa sign and sign a three year deal, which would bring him to, he would have, I believe one year before unrestricted free agency. So that would be similar with what they did with Mark Stone, um, which obviously people don't need to, you know, rehash that because that ended horribly. But, but yeah, I, I think a three-year deal could happen, which, you know, honestly, that wouldn't be, that wouldn't be the best. I four-year deal would be the worst because that would obviously bring him straight to unrestricted free agency. Um, so a three-year deal, you'd still have him as an RFA by the end, but it wouldn't lock him up long-term and, you know, maybe in that last, in that third season, Ottawa's like a pretty decent team, but I think even that is, you know, pretty hopeful. So by that point, you would be having to pay him even more. And, you know, other contracts would be adding up at that point too, like Stutzel and, and Brown and Batherson and Branson, whoever, right? Guys are, are as they're getting into their mid twenties. So it would definitely be a lot more expensive for that at that point. I do believe that Kachuk wants to be one of two faces of the franchise along with Shabbat and I guess Stutzla, Stutzla as well, I should say. So maybe, yeah, those three guys end up being the faces of the franchise. And, yeah, so, like, that's the good news. I do think that Brady wants to be here. And, you know, why wouldn't you be? Why wouldn't you want to be if you are young and, you know, everyone loves you here and you know you're going to get, well... I shouldn't say you know you're going to get money, but he probably will get handsomely paid for his next contract. So I wouldn't worry about him wanting to leave or something, but it would definitely be nice to see him sign like a seven or eight year contract. Having said that, I'm kind of expecting a bridge deal maybe in that three year range. So we'll see. Like we still have until, what, I guess end of July, like that's probably when the season will end or something. So end of July is when things will really start to heat up, but hopefully something can get done before that because 
you know, that really should be priority number one for Pierre Dorian. Absolutely. And the fact that Brijicic in his two seasons in Ottawa has been such a breath of fresh air because he comes into an organization where, you know, the culture was so toxic and obviously with the Carlson and Hoffman situation and Ubergate and everything that was happening, you see a guy like Brady who comes in with as youthful energy and positivity and he wants to make a difference in Ottawa. And I, and I am 100% convinced that he wants to say, given, I don't know if you, I can't remember if it was Bruce Garriock or whoever, they just released an article, I think either today or yesterday, that him and Shabbat both wanted to play for Belleville earlier yeah, last yeah. year. Heading into this offseason, Trevor, goaltenders were a hot commodity more than ever with guys like Hendrik Lundqvist, Braden Holtby, and Darcy Kemper on the market. One guy who really stood out amongst the rest was Pittsburgh Penguins goaltender Matt Murray, whom was on the trading block following losing the starter draft to Tristan Jari last season. With Ottawa's goalie situation being a huge question mark heading into this upcoming season, with Anders Nielsen still suffering from post-concussion syndrome, and Marcus Hogberg's play being too small of a sample to seriously give him the nod, GM Pierre Dorian actually surprised many by shooting his shot, landing Murray in a trade, then signing him to a four-year, $25 million contract when most fans were hoping at best for a Darcy Kemper. What were your thoughts on the Matt Murray trade to Ottawa, and what does he need to do to bounce back from his down season last year? Well, yeah, I do think that what probably benefited from having a very oversaturated goalie market, as you mentioned, you know, Guys like Leonard and Kemper and Markstrom were all out there, whether that was a trade or free agency. So I think Ottawa knew that they could get Murray at a decent price. And like I was saying earlier, I'm glad they didn't have to give up the 28th overall pick because I I definitely wasn't keen on doing that. Um, Just based on previous goalie trades, like you really don't see first-round picks being moved for goalies very often. I know Ottawa did that uh, in 2015 with Robin Leonard, and... Looking back, that's pretty shocking that they were even able to do that, considering, I mean, Leonard was obviously a pretty good prospect, but, you know, he wasn't proven at the time, so the fact that they got a first was pretty good. And I don't know if Murray would have necessarily been my first choice. Um, I probably would have gone for, like, more of a stopgap option, but at the same time, I think Kemper would have been, although he might be better, He's also older and probably would have been slightly more expensive. So, you know, who knows if, if Arizona is going to trade him finally or not. But, yeah, like Murray is still an exciting option. He's someone that Ottawa fans can look to and say, okay, this guy's won two Stanley Cups. You know, he, he obviously has the potential to be a very good starting goaltender. In terms of what he has to do, uh, it's tough to say. Um, I believe... I want to say, was it this year? He's had two very rough years. One of the rough years, I think it was this year. Now, I'm going to butcher this, but I'm pretty sure a family member of his had had passed away, so I know he was dealing with that. Um, Apparently that was something that he had been struggling with, and just who knows what uh, sort of mental state he was in. So I don't want to, like, pretend to know what he was going through and all that stuff but I do think that has to at least be mentioned when we're talking about his performance so it's it's really hard to say like I'm not a goalie coach by any means and I think a lot of people don't really know how to properly evaluate goalies anyway so in terms of what he has to do it's kind of hard to say but 
you know, we, we do know that Ottawa's goalie coach has a bit of a reputation, like a good reputation around the league. So hopefully that's something that can help him out there. And he's still pretty young. Like, well, young-ish. He's, he's sort of at that age where goaltenders, I mean, a lot of goaltenders don't really become starters until the age of 26, which is what he is right now. So, and, and I think it's really interesting to note, too, that Hogberg and Murray were both born in 1994. So, you know, Hogberg's a bit younger uh, with a later birthday, but still, like, it's just funny to see that Murray's been playing since, what, 2015? Like, uh, well, I guess 2016 playoffs. And, you know, Hogberg's just finally, you know, kind of establishing himself, at least as, like, a backup, maybe even better. So it'll be really fun to watch him. I, I don't know if he's necessarily going to be, uh, Murray, that is, I don't know if he's necessarily going to be like the starting goaltender when they actually want to try to win a cup in, you know, you know, maybe five years or whatever. But he is someone to sort of, I guess, make them more, what's the word I'm looking for? Respectable, I guess. And, you know, maybe they, they don't have to completely bottom out the next two years or something. And maybe they can actually reach, like, get to the playoffs sooner than they hoped just because they have an actual good starting goaltender back there. But it should be fun to watch and see if, if he can actually bounce back. And if he doesn't, then that's certainly a big contract to eat for the next four years. But I do, you know, a lot of the time I talk about swinging for the fences and taking big risks. This is certainly a big risk, but it's one that at least has a lot of potential upside. So I do like it in that sense. Well, and for myself, and I don't know how you feel about this, Trevor, but I often feel that Pierre Dorian landing Matt Murray in a weird way, was kind of like years ago when Brian Murray made the trade to bring Bobby Ryan in to replace Daniel Alfredson because you have a guy who's had success elsewhere. He comes into an organization where he's replacing an icon where Bobby Ryan replaced Alfredson. Matt Murray's now replacing Craig Anderson. If it all works out, do you think that that will be the trade for Pierre Dorian? Or one of them, I should say. Yeah, it could be. Who knows? Um... You know, I, I think Dorian will end up having to make a lot more, a lot more moves, a lot more interesting ones too. That will kind of define this next period here for the Sens. So, yeah, I definitely see some comparables there. But yeah, you know, like I, I'm very excited to see how this upcoming season plays out for him. What sort of other moves and other interesting moves do you think Dorian has to make just kind of to flush that statement out a bit more? Hmm. Well, I think they certainly they certainly need more established talent, right? Like, a lot of their hope for the fans moving forward is invested in prospects who certainly have a lot of upside but aren't necessarily established. Like, I'm very high on a guy like Drake Batherson, but he still hasn't, like, fully established himself, you know, been, like, a 50- or 60-point player or whatever. So, you know, guys like Batherson and Brandstrom... Willannon, Norris, Brown, Pinto, whoever, right? So a, a lot of their eggs are in that basket. I think they need to add guys. You know, they did it this offseason with Dadanov and Murray. So I think they will eventually have to add a couple more high-end players, whether that, that could be through the draft. I think they are, like, long-term, I think they desperately need another high-end right winger because, you know, right now, but I don't think he's going to quite be at that same level and he's only signed for three years anyway so like i said i do like batherson there but when you compare them to other teams 
They really don't have that that top elite first line winger. I think Kachuk like could be that, but you kind of need more than one. So I think they definitely need to add like one or two more real impact players. And you know who knows? Maybe they can do that via a trade. Um, hopefully, it's better than someone like Bobby Ryan. Like you know, when they did acquire Ryan, he was what twenty six at the time. So kind of similar to Murray, like like you guys were saying earlier. But you would hope that whoever they trade for in the future ends up having a better career than Ryan did in Ottawa. With Anthony DeClaire deciding to decline Ottawa's contract offer prior to free agency opening, GM Pierre Doran was now stuck with the task of replacing his offensive output, which he did when he signed former Panther of getting Dandenoff to a three-year contract. Dandenoff has actually been a sneaky good NHLer since he arrived back in the NHL in 2017, putting up a career-high points in 1819 with 70. He will most likely start the season on the top line alongside Brady and Colin White. What were your thoughts on the Dandenoff signing, and what kind of expectations should fans have on him heading into this upcoming season? Yeah, just a fantastic signing. I don't know how they convinced Dandenoff to come to Ottawa, especially for just $5 million a year. I think people probably would have expected him to get at least $6 million. I, I do think that COVID certainly changed things, and he maybe he would have gotten $6 million on a regular market, but it, it's just shocking that you know, there there wasn't another team out there that he was interested in. Because, I mean, you would think that all things being equal, if some other team offered $5 billion, he's probably choosing them. Unless, like, you know, maybe it's like, if it's the Coyotes, maybe he says no. But there's, I don't know, like a lot of the times, in order for Ottawa to actually get free agents, even like lower quality ones, they probably have to spend a tiny bit more because... You know, things like tax and small city and Canada, blah, blah, blah. So, yeah, the fact that they got him for that cheap is, is amazing. And, yeah, like you said, he, he's been fantastic in Florida. I do think some of that, he definitely benefited from playing with Jonathan Huberdeau and Sasha Barkov. So, I wouldn't expect, like, I wouldn't expect Dadunov to be a 70-point player, especially because he's, you know, he's now 31 and he's going to be playing with, like, maybe Brady Kachuk and, I mean, God, who knows on the first line, what, like, Chris Tierney or something, or maybe, like, Logan Brown or Josh Norris eventually, but, so, I wouldn't expect, like, too much from him, you know, if we're talking, obviously, this upcoming season won't be 82 games, but uh, just assuming, hypothetically, if it was 82 games, like, maybe you could expect somewhere in the 50-point range, maybe high-end getting 60 uh, but at the same time, like even that sort of production is well worth the money, and also just sort of taking a bit of pressure off a guy like Drake Batherson, where you know he doesn't. I think he still deserves a sh- uh, a spot in the top six, but he isn't sort of like that only offensive weapon on the right side in the top six. So yeah, it sort of pushes players down in the right spot. Like you can keep Connor Brown on that third line, hopefully. Uh, if he doesn't get overplayed, and then you could put like Watson on the fourth line, and then you can keep Batherson on second. So honestly, like like I was saying earlier, I this is probably my favorite signing since Clark MacArthur, and probably the most significant signing since I guess Gonchar. But you know, it might e- even end up being better than both those guys. 
Well, it's interesting when they brought Dandenoff in, and earlier we were mentioning Alex Kovalev and Sergei Gonchar, because the Senators have had this perceived anti-Russian bias where they tend to not draft guys out of Russia, they don't. They tend not to bring in Russian players, but then over the last couple of years, we've seen uh, Nikita Zaitsev came in, we have Evgeny Dandenoff, they drafted Igor Shoshikov from the QMH... J- QMA JHL, do you think that, that maybe that bias now is no longer with the Ottawa Senators? Yeah, that was a weird... It's just weird that they had avoided Russians for so long. And, yeah, like last year, they had so many guys, just Nemesnikov, Zaitsev, Anisimov, you know, signing Zub this offseason. So there's, like, just so many guys um, that they've added recently. I do think, though... So they obviously, yeah, like they drafted Sokolov um, from the queue this year, but they haven't actually drafted from Russia since I want I believe it was, uh, I don't want I want to say 2005. I think they drafted Ruslan Bashkarov in 2006, but then they hadn't actually drafted from Russia since 2005. So that's like a really long time. And, you know, I guess Zub is like the only player that they've actually acquired who had been playing in, in the KHL. So, yeah, there's still definitely, like, uh, underutilization of Russia as a whole, I think. But I guess they're they're not afraid to at least acquire Russians who, you know, have played in North America. You look at a guy like Abramov, who I would have said was, like, the least likely player to be acquired by them just because of his size and the fact that he's Russian. But they, they must be pretty fine with him considering he had uh, played in North America, especially in junior. So I think as long as they play in North America and maybe like play a certain style, they're fine with it. But, you know, I would like to see them scout a bit more in Russia because they don't even have anybody assigned there, which blind spot for them. Well, I have to wonder uh, the official moment for me where the senators were ready to bring back, sorry, bring more Russian players into the fold was when they traded uh, organizational favorite Zach Smith for Artem and Isimov. Yeah. I mean, That's yeah. an underrated moment. Yeah, right? I mean, Smith was this, you know, I think he was, he's like one of the longest tenured Ottawa Senators. Like, he, I don't know if he's in the top 10. He's certainly in the top 15, I'm pretty sure, for, for games played. And, you know, fan favorite. And, yeah, trading him for a Russian was certainly kind of interesting, even though it was probably the right thing to do, saving a tiny bit of money. Alongside with the bigger names Ottawa acquired in the offseason, Pierre Duran also made some smaller deals, which caused some mixed reactions on Sun's Twitter, like Eric Gabranson as an example. But none of them were as overwhelmingly negative than the trade to acquire Austin Watson. Watson has been a guy that we have here on the show have covered quite a bit extensively over the last couple of years regarding his problems with alcohol and his domestic abuse charge in 2018. Since Twitter overall just lost their mind when this when this trade was announced, and I do see why that is. However, I'm of the minority. Like I'm willing to give this guy a chance if he has proven to himself that he's got he's got his demons behind. Is like I don't expect him to come in here and be a 30 goal guy. I expect him to be kind of an energy guy. But I do see why there's so much negative reaction. And I know that you were of the of the majority who was negative towards this trade. So I would love to know, since time has passed, since the trade has happened, has your opinion changed at all regarding Watson? Or do you still feel Ottawa should not have brought him in in the first place? Well, I will say that, 
you know, if I was in charge, I definitely would have targeted him. Now, it's if anyone listened to my episode, my uh, the Cost Per Pointcast, talking about this, Colin and I were definitely very uncomfortable just talking about it because, you know, as as you sort of are sort of are getting at here, there there's a lot of nuance in this situation, right? Like it's not, um, and and I think Twitter doesn't do a very good job of showing nuance obviously and like it, these sort of conversations are much better had like this in this sort of podcast format or just like face to face because see there's multiple aspects aspects to it right like just purely from a hockey standpoint i don't think watson is that great of a player you know he's been pretty decent on the penalty kill so like i'll give him that he's um at least effective there but overall he hasn't really given that much when he's played with the predators and he's pretty much just like a guy you can fight and hit. And it also sort of bugs me a tiny bit that a lot of these acquisitions are, you know, guys who have been formally coached by DJ Smith. And now that's not necessarily a bad thing. Like, obviously, there is the aspect of familiarity and you know that hopefully they'll get along very well and like easy to coach and stuff. So it's not a bad thing. But... I do worry that there might be a bit of bias and just sort of like overvaluing guys that you used to coach, especially when you coach them in junior where they were clearly like looks a lot better than they do now, um, you know, playing against teenagers. So I, I think from that aspect, like the on ice aspect, I'm not, I'm not the biggest fan of it, especially because he, you know, they had to give up a fourth round pick and he's still signed for another three years, which is quite a long time for like a fourth line player. And so yeah, just in terms of that, I, I'd much rather just see them, you know, give that spot to uh, a guy like Philip Schlopik or something. Like I know he shoots left, but or just anybody who isn't really like Schlopik isn't a top prospect or, or Rudolf Spalsters or or whoever. So yeah, in terms of that, I'm not the biggest fan, but I can at least I know what they're going for. I know like their philosophy is of like trying to play hard against, and so I can at least see what they're going for, trying to have some of these bruisers in the bottom part of their lineup, and hopefully Smith can at least utilize Watson well, because if he does utilize him well, it's not as if he's the worst player in the league, but having said that, he has had a couple seasons where he has been near the bottom, so it sort of depends on how well Watson can play and how well he's utilized, and then you look at the off-ice aspect, and it's, it's very complicated, right? So... I don't, I don't love talking about it in the sense that I'm, like, super confident either way. And, you know, like, like you're saying, like, you want to give people chances. And for sure, like, that's obviously what, you know, people deserve second chances. But it, it just sort of makes, makes me uncomfortable as a fan. And I think a lot of people kind of share that sentiment where, you know, you, you just sort of feel that, feel uncomfortable cheering on a guy who has a bit of this past. Now, I will say that it does seem like both him and his wife are working on moving past this, and they both have had sub, uh, substance abuse issues, I believe, and have been, you know, going to meetings and and uh, really trying to work on themselves, especially, like, as individuals, but also as a couple. So I hope that that's true. Now, the only thing is we don't know how how much of that actually is true, so we don't know if we can trust it. And then also there is something to be said that 
I, I hope, I like, I should preface this with, I truly hope that, you know, he actually didn't do anything wrong in the initial instance with the uh, abuse. But I will say that it is common for women who have gone through some abuse to either, or sorry, not either, just for them to defend their abusers because they're either scared of the repercussions or almost have this sort of like Stockholm syndrome type thing. That's not necessarily the right word for it, but it's just, just sort of like not seeing how wrong it actually is. So I'm not necessarily saying that's what happened. So I, I don't want to like for someone to put words in my mouth and say that's that's totally what I believe. I'm just saying that that could be at play here. And I, I just think it's worth mentioning because I would like to believe the best in people, and I would like to believe that both of them have moved on, and it was just a misunderstanding, and and all this stuff. But we need to, you know, we can't. That doesn't mean we just are fully forgiving of him, and you know, aren't questioning him at all, and move past this 100%. I still think questions need to be asked, and it's really tough. Like I know I probably for some people I'm, I'm probably coming across as as a bit harsh. But it's such a sensitive topic, and the reality is that like none of us know, and even myself. So even if I am coming across as judging him one way, that's only because I see this a lot. Where you know I believe even Slava Voinov's, or was it Voinov or yes Varlamov? It was Voinov. Was it, yeah, but I'm pretty sure Voinov, his girlfriend or wife or whoever it was, I believe. They had even defended him too, even though she had been, you know, severely injured. So it happens. Again, not saying that this is necessarily what's happening, but it just sort of makes me uncomfortable. And it's, yeah, it's it's not something that you want to have to talk about when you're when you're talking about your favorite team, right? So like, I I would have rather just have avoided this entire topic, but instead we're we're having to talk about this on multiple podcasts, and it's just sort of. Yeah, it's just sort of a big like shrug of the shoulders, like you don't know. But yeah, that that's kind of where I stand right now. That's very fair, and honestly, I didn't think that you were being critical one way. I just listening to you talking there, it really <clears throat> excuse me. I got a real sense that you're looking at both sides of the argument. Where yes, if he can come in and prove that okay, he's got his demons behind him, you understand that he may not be the best hockey player in the world. He's more of an energy guy. But we also can't just forget that his domestic abuse charge happened off the ice. Yeah, for sure, and and I think that's going to live with him the rest of his life. And and you know, like as it should, to be honest, like that should be always be a part of him improving and you know never forgetting his past and making sure that him and his family are on the right path. So so that they're not going going back to old bad habits and and things like that. So yeah, like honestly, I, I do wish him and his family all the best right because you know you don't want to see anybody going through the things that they did so last year's senators team had a number of guys whom fans were quite happy with with their play and production one guy however most were very disappointed with was centerman colin white now following his contract extension prior to the 2019-20 season expectations for white were high as he was now the team's number one center looking to top his career high in points from the season prior However, he struggled throughout the year, only posting 23 points in 71 games as questions begin to arose whether the team made the right decision to give him the big money extension. 
What were some of the issues you saw with Colin White last season, and what does he need to do to have a bounce-back season this year? Well, I certainly think not playing with Mark Stone definitely had a big impact on him. He for sure benefited in in 18-19 before Stone got traded. Now, I don't think that's totally fair to say that he was 100% riding his coattails and, like, I don't. I don't think it's it's fair to say that 1920 is who Colin White is. Obviously, had some of the injury trouble, and I think that it sort of took him some time to, you know, get back in the swing of things. And, and I think he can definitely be much better. I think he can settle in as maybe like a 30 to 40, maybe even 45 point center, which is you know fine on on the third line. I think he can either be on in that center spot or maybe even on the right wing if they want to move him there eventually. So I think he definitely has some use. He's probably one of their better defensive forwards. So even just for that aspect, he's, he's worth keeping around. And I, I think it's going to be a bit unfair because I think people are going to expect him to be that $4.75 million player. And, you know, I, I sort of hoped he could, turn into like a 50 or maybe even more point player at when he signed that contract. But that might be a bit too hopeful now. And who knows, like maybe he's still pretty young. Maybe he, he still has time to take that next step, but I wouldn't totally expect that. And I sort of expect guys like Norris Brown, Stutzla, maybe even Pinto to sort of leapfrog him in terms of the, the center depth chart. But yeah, just in terms of getting better, I think just having a full season will certainly help. Getting away from more time away from his his previous injury, just being healthy for a, for a full season will certainly be good. And I mean, obviously, like just better line mates too. Um, off the top of my head, I, I can't remember exactly who he played with for the most time last season. But as Ottawa just improves and gets better depth. That'll certainly help his point totals as well. I think his defense will always be there. So I think even if he's, you know, a 25-point player, he'll still have some value in the bottom six. But, yeah, it's just unfortunate that his contract is a bit large. But, you know, I I wouldn't say that it's necessarily a, a terrible contract or anything, especially because it sort of gave... Now, it's not that he's a star or anything, but it sort of gave the rebuild a bit of legitimacy right like having both Shabbat and White sign long-term contracts just made it seem like okay they can actually keep some guys around so that aspect of it just like the the PR aspect is certainly good and you know I wouldn't be quick to to move White I think he's still worth keeping around well and I often wonder when it comes to the criticisms of Colin White last season. Now, obviously, given that he was making the big bucks last year, that played a big factor in it. But I often wonder, like, if he was getting paid, say, two and a half, three million, do you think those criticisms would have been as loud as they were? Yeah, probably not. I mean, because then you're, that's like hardly any money at all. So, I mean, I, I guess he would get some criticism just because his play would have dropped off from the year prior. But, like, there, there are people who are saying that they shouldn't protect him in the expansion draft, and I think that's kind of crazy, to be honest. Yeah, and I think it's also almost not really fair, because the Senators are definitely better on both ends of the ice with Colin White off the ice versus on the ice. Uh, 
they're getting much better looks at the net with him on when you look at Hockey Business Isolates. Like, it's right up to the net. The threat's higher. Mm-hmm. And on the defensive end, the net's clean when he's there. When he's off the ice, not as much. So I think Colin White gets a bit of a bad rap, and I think the only thing that's really disconnecting him from his salary is his horrid puck luck. Yeah, it's true. And, and yeah, I mean, that's something, too, that will improve. Well, not improve, but just, like, balance out, right? And even that difference will probably make, make him, like, a 35-point player without even adjusting for better line mates, healthier season, stuff like that. One of the biggest storylines of last year's Ottawa Senators team was the number of young guns making the roster and sticking all season. DJ Smith ended up nixing this idea after five games into the season. However, one guy who managed to stick around, well, sort of, was Drake Batherson. Batherson did look like a completely different player once he got sent down to Belleville and came back later on in the season last year. Given how he played in his return to the team, what kind of expectations should fans have on him as we start a new year? You know, I don't want to put too much pressure on him, but I have very high hopes for him. I think in fall of 2019, I'm pretty sure I I predicted that he was going to get like 55 or 60 points. Like I was very high on him just because of how dominant he was in the AHL the year before. So you know, the fact that he didn't stick with the team last year was certainly disappointing. But, you know, as you say, he was much better down the stretch um, on that last, most recent call-up. And I believe, off the top of my head, I believe he was on pace for 35 points last year, like, pro-rated on a full season. So, you know, that's that's fine. Like, that's good enough for, like, a third-line role or whatever. But I think he's ready for top six, I think, this coming season. You know, if we're talking per 82 games, I think you could see Batherson get... I Like, I would expect him to at least be getting, like, 45 points. And I think 50 would be solid. Like, I'd be very happy with that. Um, anything more would be gravy so far. So, to be honest, like, I'd be a bit disappointed if it was, you know, under 40. Just because I think he would still get a decent shot in the top six. You know, maybe he gets to play with Tim Stutzla. Maybe he's his left winger or a guy like Alex Formatin or something. So, yeah, I think he should get a decent shot. And, yeah, like, I think he's going to be a fixture in the top six for a long time. Um, I I don't think he's necessarily going to be an elite player, but I think he should at least be someone that that they can um, count on on the second line for sure. So, obviously, your expectations aren't going to be a of him becoming an elite player, but are you thinking maybe he can become another, say a Martin Havlat or an Antoine Vermette? Yeah, I think, yeah. I like my expectation is kind of in the 60 range, 60 point range. Like maybe he has one like amazing season that where he puts up 70, but yeah, like 50, fifties, sixties point range, that kind of, kind of area. And just sort of like average ish on, on defense, but that's still a very valuable player. You know, probably someone who's going to be getting upwards of $7 million or something like that. So, Tim, do you have any questions for Trevor before we throw it off to the close? So, when do we start calling Dadanov Daddy? Yesterday. Damn. (laughs) So, Trevor, we can't thank you enough for coming back onto the podcast. I hope you have a great holidays. I hope all the best to you and your family as we're continuing with COVID-19. 
Two questions before we let you go, though. First of all, where can our listeners find you on social media? And where can they find Cosper Pointcast and Silver 7 Sounds? Yeah, thanks for letting me plug, guys. Yeah, so uh, you can follow me on Twitter at ShaqTS. Uh, you can read my articles at Silver 7 Sends and find the Cosper Pointcast on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher. Um, it will be listed under Silver 7, though, uh, because we do share a feed there. And then you can also follow me on, or, well, subscribe, I guess, on YouTube to the Hockey Shack. Um, just have some random sort of Ottawa videos and then also some uh, NHL content in general as well. But, yeah, gentlemen, thank you for having me on again. It's always a pleasure. And the final question before we let you go, given that all 31 NHL teams have released their reverse retro jerseys, in one word, can you sum up your thoughts on the Ottawa Senators' reverse retro jersey? Ooh, Okay. Um, oh, one word. <laughs> uh, it's tough, right? Yeah. I, okay. Like, I want to say, I want to say better than expected, but that's three words. So, like, uh, I don't know, I don't know, like, a, a synonym for, like, rolling that, those three into one. Like, I guess the obscure German word. Let's go. Yeah, exactly, right? Dazzling. Because it, it does look, like, up close, it's very dazzling. Like, all the gold and stuff. Like, the details are quite nice, actually. It's much better than, than, than like, the mock-ups that you saw. I think in person it looks a lot nicer. Awesome, Trevor. Thank you so much for doing this. Again, like I, like I was saying, it's always a pleasure. Thanks for having me on, guys. Hi, this is Stuntman Stu from Magic 100 and the former public address announcer of your Ottawa Senators. Please welcome the third line plug, Sensecast! All right, we are back. Big thank you once again to the guys at Left Coast Leafs Podcast, Chris Katugas and Trevor Shackles for taking time out of their schedules to record these segments with us. Yeah, it's... uh big undertaking it was awesome to get all the time out of out of chris out of trevor and our buds at uh the left coast Leafs podcast i think we got a much better perspective for not only the other i want to say atlantic division canadian teams but truly canadian division if that's what's going to happen at the start of the season next year but even a greater appreciation for our own ottawa senators so thanks everyone Yes, again, we can't thank all those guys enough, and and we can't thank the enough guys on the Western Conference episode for taking time out of their schedule. Now, given that this will most likely be the last episode we record before Christmas, just want to give a quick shout out to everybody. We hope you have a great holidays. We understand that the COVID-19 pandemic is still effective and still here, so please take time to take care of yourselves, take care of your families, and don't forget to wear a mask. And if you want to try something new for Christmas, and you can always take a page out of the Japanese and order in some KFC. Or another fried chicken if KFC's not your bucket. You heard it here first, ladies and gentlemen. Well, guys, thank you so much for listening to the Third Line Plug Sensecast. I hope you've enjoyed this because, believe me, Tim and I love recording it for you. We're on the National Podcast Network. You can find our page on nationalpodcast.network. You can find our page as well as the links to iTunes, SoundCloud, and Google Play. We're also on Twitter. At Third Line Plug is our Twitter handle. Tim is at M901HoneyBadger. I'm at GreatWhiteGipster, G-R-8-W-Y-T-E-Gipster. 
if you want to choose an email to talk about the segments we recorded with the guys of the Left Coast Leafs podcast, Chris Katugas and Trevor Shackles, choose an email, thirdlegplugsensecast at gmail.com. Until next time, guys, I am your host, Taylor Gibson. And this has been Tim Jensen. Go Sens, guys.